Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Friday, December 28th, 2018, starting at 2 o'clock p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 187th episode of the show. You can help us support the production of future episodes of the podcast and get access to some great subscriber benefits like uh, early access to new episodes by becoming a patron through our page on Patreon. For more information, visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic, and we're going to provide an overview of the major astrological transits and planetary alignments that will be taking place over the course of the next year in 2019. Uh, with that intro out of the way, hey Kelly and Austin, welcome back. Hey guys. Hey, what's up? Hey, so we we did our Q&A episode a few what, what, a week or two ago, we got caught up on where our lives are at over the past few weeks and trips and everything else. And now in this episode, we're ready to just jump right into the full forecast. So before we get started, just a few things I want to make sure, especially for new viewers who are just finding us, that people know where to find out more about our work if they're interested in this episode and want to learn more about each of our individual classes and consultations and everything else. Uh, so Kelly, first to you, um, where can people find out more information and what sort of things do you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So I offer online astrology classes as well as video conference, uh, video consults, I guess. And you can find me online. The best place is via my website, kellysastrology.com. Brilliant. And Austin, what about you? Uh, I, I teach online and I do readings for people both in person and remotely. And I do quite a bit of writing and I have a Patreon for that. You can find all my stuffs at austincopic.com. All right, brilliant. And as for myself, I'm the host of the Astrology Podcast, and I have a Patreon where you can get early access to new episodes, as well as uh, teach online courses. You can find links to everything on the sidebar of theastrologypodcast.com. All right, guys, uh, let's jump right into everything. So 2019, we're going to be giving an overview of all of the major transits of 2019. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on next year. We're going to focus especially on outer planet transits, of which there's almost like more of than compared to other years on some level, I feel like. Instead of going through, we had two options. We could either go through this chronologically, like month by month, or we could go through it in terms of what are like the top five, top 10 biggest transits of next year that we're focused on. I think in the past, it's always worked out better for us to go through chronologically and sort of work our way through the year, because then it's more of like a natural sort of unfolding of what the next 12 months is going to be like. Um, does that sound like a that sound like an optimal approach to you guys? Sounds like a plan. A good one. Happy to do that. That sounds great. Okay, brilliant. So let's start off at the top of the year then uh, with January. So January is a big month. There's a lot going on in January. It's weird because January is almost like a microcosm of the entire year in some respects, where it seems like a lot of the major um, planetary stuff that we're going to be dealing with most of 2019 actually really begins in 2019 and not in like the usual way that you might say that where everything begins at the beginning of the year but in that there's a lot of major outer planet stuff that's happening already in January that kind of like provides a setup for the rest of the year uh that was my impression sort of going through and looking at this year did you guys feel the same way is January seem as sort of dynamic and as much of a preview of of what's to come to you guys as it does to me yeah, totally. I think that uh, to January sets up a lot of the themes that we're going to then explore and revisit throughout the year. 
Uh, we're going to have, you know, the Jupiter square Neptune aspect, for instance, which is one of the bigger outer planet aspects for 2019. That first uh, exact ac activation <clears throat> does happen in January, but it will play out through the year. We will get a Mars square Saturn aspect in January and hard aspects between Mars and Saturn are a bit of a signature for 2019. Uh, plus we get a taste of, you know, whatever goodness that Jupiter and Sag might have to offer. That's really amplified by the presence of Venus in Sag with Jupiter in January. So yeah, I think that that's definitely fair. And, and the, the new eclipses in Cancer and Capricorn, they kick off in January as well. But did you have different thoughts, Austin, or were you kind of along the same track? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a fair statement. Um, we have the Jupiter-Neptune square, which um, is going to happen uh, two more times in 2019. And I think more importantly, we have, um, we get to meet the new eclipse cycle. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, in, in Capricorn, with a, which features the south node in Capricorn and the north node in Cancer. And it means there are eclipses next to Saturn and Pluto in Capricorn. And I would say that that is, you know, in many ways, um, 2019 uh, has very clearly defined, uh, has very clearly defined advantages and, and disadvantages. The tough stuff is the Saturn Pluto South Node, and the 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 fun stuff is the Jupiter and Sag, and so we kind of get to meet both the the heroes and villains very quickly. Yeah, definitely, and um, it's not just January is interesting because it's not just the beginning of and the opening of the new eclipse series, which is the eclipses for the next year and a half or so, bouncing back and forth between Capricorn and Cancer, especially this year where we get. Two in the calendar year, we get two Capricorn solar eclipses and one Cancer solar eclipse. But we also have the ending of the previous cycle, where in January on the 21st, we get the very last lunar eclipse in Leo, which really closes out that whole eclipse series that we've been going through over the past couple of years in Aquarius and Leo, which included the great American eclipse, which was a solar eclipse in Leo, which is like the opposite of this lunar eclipse in Leo that's really bringing the whole sequence to completion. Um, so this is a this is just the calendar I'm showing really quickly right now for those watching the video version, which is the uh, transits and the ingresses and the stations for January from the 2019 the Astrology Podcast uh, Planetary Alignments calendar, available of course at theastrologypodcast.com/slash/2019posters. And you know the end of the lunar eclipse. I wanted to just touch on that briefly. I realize that's kind of like backwards looking instead of forward looking. But do you guys think it's notable to have like a lunar eclipse kind of closing out that entire sequence of Aquarius Leo eclipses um, this month? I mean, to me, that's sort of bringing something to completion uh, before moving in more firmly into the new eclipse series in Capricorn and Cancer. Well, what's interesting is that uh, the new the new series actually starts before we close out the old. Um, which is often the case with uh, different eclipse series. There's a sort of um, interlinking of the past and future, or you know, uh, the old cycle and the new. We start the new and then resolve the old. Um, the new begins with the eclipse on January 5th, and then it's about two weeks later that we get the resolution of the old, which is the, I believe it's a total lunar eclipse on the 20th, 21st, uh, in Leo. But yeah, it's definitely the, you know, 
January uh, having that function of really introducing the new, uh, really introducing the new part of really introducing the new is completing or finalizing the old. And so it does that. Yeah. And it just seems like a sort of a culmination or bringing to completion about whatever, especially for individuals, like whatever area of your chart those Leo eclipses have been in, this being the final resolution or final result of of all of that over the past year or two. Absolutely. And and the Leo Aquarius eclipses really going out with a bang because even though it's the last in that series, this is still technically a total lunar eclipse because the moon is very close to the nodal axis, even though they are split across two different signs. And I think we will see, if you like, some of the cliche of emotional dramas because it's a full moon in Leo that happens to be an eclipse uh, just to close out whatever the last 18 months of Leo Aquarius eclipses has been for people. Right. So here it is in the in the video, just highlighting it's on 20th, 21st, um, a, a total lunar eclipse at zero degrees of Leo. And that's happening right around the same time in the middle of January we, where we get that lovely Venus-Jupiter conjunction around 15, 16 degrees of Sagittarius, which is trining Mars at 13 uh, Aries at the time. So that's part of what we're dealing with this month. The other thing we're dealing with this month, in addition to the eclipses that you already mentioned, Austin, I think, or Kelly did, that we have the very first of three, a sequence of three Jupiter-Neptune squares. And this is going to be one of the like characteristic aspects going on for the entirety of 2019. And since this is the very first one in January, this is going to open up a sequence of events for some people that's going to tie together those three exact squares that take place at different points during the course of this year. And one of the things that's weird about that that we've talked about before is it means that we're not just dealing with a, a straight, you know, Jupiter transit through Sagittarius, or even in this instance, a Venus-Jupiter conjunction in Sagittarius, which otherwise sounds relatively pleasant, but it's it's being heavily colored by, or anything that Jupiter is doing this year is being heavily colored by that square with Neptune. Have you guys thought much about that square and how are you interpreting it, uh, Jupiter square Neptune in Sagittarius and Pisces? Oh, I'll go. Um, I think uh, I see it as a modifier to Jupiter and Sagittarius. I don't, I don't think it's a huge deal um, because Jupiter is so strong in uh, in Sagittarius, and when a planet is super strong, it kind of gets to do what it wants, even if there's contention from other planets. And Neptune, which is, you know, offering the modification is actually ruled by Jupiter. And so has to answer to Jupiter anyway. Um, And I don't, and I I guess also uh, Neptune's nature is not very contrary to Jupiter. In many ways, uh, in many ways, I think that Neptune is is sort of like Jupiter without, it's like a more... Mm-hmm. Passive Yin Jupiter uh, that doesn't have proper limits, um, but Neptune is also expansive, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, as a modifier, I suppose what I what I see is that uh, Jupiter Neptune is going to make the aspiration, uh, the aspirations and ambitions that Jupiter in Sagittarius seeds bigger. Um, dreamier, and it, it will, uh, for some people, uh, that will result in them 
um, what should we say, dreaming bigger and achieving it. And for other people, it'll be dreaming too big to achieve it. Um, but it, 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 it further expands the scope of Jupiter and Sagittarius's ambitions, I would say, for better and worse. Right. I like that. So that's like, in some instances, you need that inspiration, you need that higher inspiration and that goal, even if that goal ends up being in retrospect, almost like you set yourself up too high or you shot too high and, and the end result was something a little bit lower or more towards the middle in terms of what you actually accomplished, sometimes having that idealization to shoot for and the optimization, uh, the op optim just being optimistic enough to go for it is sometimes necessary in order to sort of accomplish anything. Yeah, well, it's the it's the uh, as I wrote about last month, um, it's the principle of uh, an archer will aim slightly above their target to correct for gravity, um, and so you know it's like shoot for the stars and you might hit the moon. Um, sometimes there, there's a certain part of us that needs to aim for something better than what we will achieve by aiming for that. You know, correcting for gravity, I think, is a pretty good way to think about it. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. So the archer, mm -hmm. the, you have to shoot above your target in order to actually hit what realistically you're you're aiming for. That's going to be with that Jupiter Neptune square happening for most of the year. I think that's going to be a great metaphor for people to keep in mind with that, which is a double-edged sword. Because on, on the one hand, you're acknowledging the you know, how unfeasible it is to actually achieve some of the things that you might set out to achieve, but on the other hand, the necessity of having like high ideals or aspirations which might be ultimately unattainable but you kind of need that as a motivating factor sometimes in order to make some of the greatest accomplishments um what is that what yeah. sort of metaphors have you used kelly for that for jupiter neptune squares yeah i have um i've kind of been dancing again between the idea that you know a square to neptune can often be uh, confusing or create some uncertainty. It can remove the level of logic and place us into the realm of the imagination or the idea of trusting intuition. So it's a lot about kind of feeling the flow uh, rather than heavy, hard planning. I know over the last couple of months, I've been thinking about my own personal 2019 and, and the first few months of the year, I kind of knew where I was going to be and I just left the second part of the year wide open because we had all these options that may or may not happen. And, you know, with Jupiter and Neptune, there's this feeling of being in that inspiration, imagination place. Um, I, I do agree with Austin that a Jupiter square to Neptune with Jupiter in such strong dignity does have a lot of positivity to offer. You know, it's it, it's guiding you towards a really meaningful direction or it's encouraging you to maybe loosen up like loosey goosey, but where you need to let go or soften up a little bit. And I, I was also, I've also thought about this Jupiter square Neptune in the context of like hope and helping and generosity around that idea of wanting to support or to give what you can or to pour out where you've got an excess or an abundance and sometimes with Neptune, we're pouring out, you know, on a ground that is already wet and soaked, or we're pouring out to people that don't want to take a sip from the cup right now. So I think there may be a little bit of like wastage in terms of the giving this year, but I think it's coming from a good place. And a lot of what you're offering is still potentially going to hit the mark. So I think there is still some maybe outcomes we'll be happy with from the Jupiter-Neptune, even if we have some moments where we're a little confused along the path. 
Yeah, definitely. That ultimately, Jupiter does have the upper hand. It is the planet that's in the superior position, not just in its own sign, yeah. but also in terms of this being the the waning uh, Jupiter-Neptune square. So it's like if it was on the other side and Neptune was earlier in zodiacal order, then Neptune might have the upper hand, and therefore the sort of like illusory nature of Neptune um, that maybe promises more than it delivers would would dominate the the sort of theme of the year but instead here it's the other way around so it's like maybe you know Jupiter is actually able to deliver on the promises um, even if it it's heavily tinged by Neptune and sort of at first might seem like it's like over promising something in some sense yeah I don't think the over promising like I do think that's a relevant um, archetype and the other couple of cycles I've reflected on as I've thought about this Jupiter square Neptune for 2019. You know, I thought about when was the last time that we had a Jupiter square Neptune aspect, which was back in 2012 when Jupiter was in Gemini. And at that point, I think Neptune really dominated the the square there because of the superior position and also because Jupiter and Gemini, you know, struggles a little bit more generally just because that's a detriment placement for Jupiter. So it's not the same as that uh, time, but it, even though it is a, an aspect repeating, and then the other piece that I think about is between 2015 and 2017, we had Saturn in the sign of Sagittarius. And for many people who found that a particularly sort of difficult or stressful time, Jupiter now in Sag taking the place of where Saturn was, it does feel like some of the opportunities that will come the way for people really affected by this square are a reward or a result of maybe some of the the challenges that they just worked through with Saturn in Sag a few years ago. Yeah, definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Um, this is definitely the other side of you know the Saturn Neptune square that we saw a few years ago, and that's a much different energy having Jupiter go through it at the same time. I feel like I don't know if you guys got this feeling as well, but there's so much um, so many Earth placements going on. There's so much going on in Capricorn this year. And that Saturn Pluto conjunction is starting to get so close. It doesn't go exact this year, but it's still like one of the dominant energies of the year because it gets, I think, within a degree by the end of 2019 of going exact. Um, that Jupiter transiting through Sagittarius seems to be like one of the main offsetting and sort of optimistic influences that's going on this year. That even when things get really heavy during the course of the summer, we still have Jupiter going through Sagittarius sort of like lightening things up and balancing things out. And it seems like that's going to be one of the saving graces consistently this year, but also just in January we, where we can see this pile up of stuff happening in Capricorn, but at the same time we have that Venus-Jupiter conjunction sort of offsetting it. Totally. Yeah. And that's why I was just thinking about this yesterday actually, is that you know we've got the Jupiter stuff, which is happening in a sign adjacent to the Saturn stuff. So they're they're not interfering with each other, but they're happening in, in different parts of our lives or around different topics. Um, what were your thoughts on that, Austin? Oh, yeah, I would agree with, well, everything both the, everything that y'all said. I really liked the point that you made about the generosity and altruism that Jupiter and Neptune together generate. Um, they're both very kind. Um, and mm. I, would, I, I would add that, so we've been talking about how Neptune will modify Jupiter, but I think that we can also think about it the opposite way, which is how how does Jupiter contribute or uh, or detract from from what Neptune's trying to do in Pisces, which is uh, as far as far as my thinking goes, uh, like a fourteen year 
mission of global weirdening. Um, you know, if you think about, well, if you one, if you look at the the last time Neptune was in Pisces, things got weirder very quickly. That's when the seances became very popular, um, became a you know the 19th century equivalent of pop culture. And if you think about, you know, what's happened to reality since 2012, since Neptune entered Pisces, you know, we have millions, we have millions of uh, of kids identifying as witches in the United States. There's definitely the this weirdening mission, and I think that uh, Jupiter Jupiter's time in Sagittarius will actually boost that on a cultural level. I think this is actually a strong time for Neptune as far as what Neptune is into and what its concerns are. Right, that's a really good point because that's one of the functions of Jupiter is to like affirm or to say yes to other planets in the chart, or at least traditionally that's how the Hellenistic astrologers used it through the conditions of bonification, where Jupiter, when it was making a close aspect to other planets would say yes to what it wants to signify. But it's funny in this instance that it's Neptune. It's like an outer planet that wants to signify the 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 illusory, the the strange, the otherworldly, the things that are kind of like in between worlds. Uh, but it's saying yes to that very strongly in some ways this year. I mean, we got a lot of that last year with the trine where Jupiter was moving through Scorpio and we saw the rise of like, as you were saying, like witches and occultism like going Mainstream suddenly, which was really interesting and surprising almost to see. But we almost have like an intensification of that now that we have Jupiter in the 10th sign relative to Neptune, uh, making that superior uh, degree base square all year. Definitely. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's an intensification because that trine to Jupiter and Scorpio was pretty good. Um, but it's at least a, a um, an affirmation or a continuance. It's sort of like what happened last year. Yeah, that's going to keep happening. Right. Yeah. Like an encouragement. And I do think for a number of reasons, I thought that Neptune in Pisces is a bit of a focus this year because two of the major outer planet aspects, we've got the Jupiter square to Neptune, but we also have Saturn sextile Neptune. So they're both sort of pulling in, you know, Jupiter and Saturn can make things a little bit more real or, manif or you know, tangible or made manifest. It's sort of pulling in that Neptunian inspiration. Uh, and I also think about the Neptune in Pisces, you know, this is a very wet kind of energy uh, as a contrast to the very dry, kind of hardening, almost brittle qualities of Saturn and Pluto in Capricorn. So there's some really contrasting qualities coming through. And I, I feel like Neptune is sort of at the center of a lot of what's going on in 2019. Definitely. Um, so uh, the other major thing that's happening this month in January before we move on is Uranus is stationing direct in Aries, and that is the final station of Uranus in Aries, which is going to basically start to wrap up at this point over the next couple of months. It's seven-year-long transit through that sign that started way back in 2011. So for some people, like a, a station of Uranus is an intensification of the planet oftentimes. So if you have planets in like late degrees of cardinal signs, that could be still be relevant for you. But for a lot of people, it seems like this is going to be like looking back on the the major and sometimes radical and sometimes or, or most of the time unexpected changes that occurred for you in the part of your life that Uranus has been transiting or the part of your chart that Uranus has been transiting over the past seven years and sort of taking stock of some of those changes over the course of the past decade and just looking back on them. 
before Uranus moves forward and then just completely departs from that sign and moves into Taurus in March, where it will stay for the greater part of the next decade. Um, did you guys have any thoughts? I know we've talked a lot about Uranus going through Aries over the course of the past several years that we've been doing these forecasts. Um, did you guys have any reflections on that transit or either what it's meant for you or, or things that you've seen in, in the lives of like clients over the past several years? Austin? Mm, I don't know that I have anything particularly concise to say. Um, uh, we'll come back to me on that. Okay. Well, well, let me ask. Well, let me ask you a personal question then, Austin. You, as a person with Cancer rising, Uranus has been transiting through <laughs> your tenth house over the past decade. Have you had any any radical changes in terms of your your career o o during that time? Um, yes, I'm much more successful than when it began. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was yeah, actually. I mean... It was actually for me. You know, I. I um, uh, excuse me. Uranus's time. Uranus's time in Pisces, where I have I keep my son and a couple other of my things, was much more groundbreaking for me. I thought mm. I actually thought um, when I was looking at it in 2011 that Uranus and Aries would be much because it was it's my natal tenth. I thought it would be bigger and more earth shaking. Um, but the way that it's worked, and, and uh, it, this times to the particular, the particularly precise transits to my midheaven and aspects to other planets, is it's been um, relatively um, snack size breakthroughs professionally, where it's like, and now you are invited to speak at a conference, and now you have a book offer, um, and so uh, actually, you know, the Uranus and Aries came through for me in a. Uh, I don't know how to say in a much more polite manner than Uranus usually comes through um, for people. Yeah, because sometimes you do see those like sudden, unexpected, like you know, sudden like right turn where the person's life goes in a completely different direction. And yours has certainly been more, you know, building and progressive development over the course of the decade. But it's also been interesting seeing you remake your image and just your public profile over the past decade, and like shedding your previous. Uh, persona where you actually use like a pseudonym in order to start your astrological career. And a large part of the last decade for me, just as an observer, has been interesting seeing you go through radical sort of change of becoming more or, or at least publicly becoming more of who you are on the world stage. Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, I, I, um, I quit writing under a pseudonym during the initial ingress of Uranus in 2010. And um, you know, I I I, th I think that one of the so one of the things people say about Uranus is on a psychological spiritual level it pushes you towards authenticity, um, and I definitely feel like that's been a consistent push to do that professionally. I think one of the reasons mm. that I didn't have to um, destroy everything and start over again or make a radical right turn uh, or left turn is because I'd had. I'd, I'd just gone through seven years of Uranus transiting my son, which is my sect light. And so I was already Uranus up, you know, I'd already had like a, it was during that period that I kind of broke with other people's ideas about what, sh what I should do with my life and said, I was going to be an astrologer. And, you know, I, I made a lot of those Uranian changes. And so I think that Uranus's movement into my 10th subsequent to that required less rewiring. If that makes sense. Not that it didn't have its own story, but there was less less needed to be broken down because of that. 
Sure, definitely. And yeah. Kelly, for you, you're kind of similar in that you have even more Pisces placements than Austin. So you really dealt with Uranus and got primed. And, and most of your like major Uranus transits would have come in that decade before while Uranus was moving through Pisces, most of the, the later part of the 2000s. Um, but how has Uranus, how's that transit been for you over the course of the past decade since 2011? It's been moving through. Can I see your chart, please? Since like your yeah, second yeah, of course house? you just it's in the second okay. house. Yeah, I feel like okay. there's revelations so, coming. Um, so do you think yeah, have, you, I, have you seen like changes in terms of your your finances, your ability to make money? Have they been sort of unexpected or drastic or or revolutionary in some way? Yeah, I mean, I like Austin. I do think I've had more of a gentle version, if you like, of Uranus in Aries. And I, for similar reasons, I attribute that to, you know, when Uranus goes over all your lights and your angles and everything, when Uranus was in Pisces, that I had done so much, you know, I'd, I'd broken through with writing and I'd broken through with astrology all while Uranus was in Pisces. So the Uranus in Aries, which is second house for me, has been very much about figuring out the money thing, um, which funnily enough, up until the Uranus in Aries piece had felt like a bit of a mystery to me was like I did my work and I got paid, but that was kind of it, you know. Um, I wasn't really, you know, doing all the right things with money, if you like. So that's been a huge piece, like managing the personal finance, that type of thing. Um, I often talk about Uranus in the second or in the eighth or when Uranus is transiting the ruler of the second or the eighth about financial freedom. And I think as we're coming to the end of the Uranus in Aries, for me personally, you know, I've paid off credit cards and I don't have that kind of debt anymore, just to speak really openly about it. So there has been, if you like, a liberation where more of my money is more of my own because it's not going to pay stupid interest rates on things. Um, I also thought too, as some general comments about Uranus in Aries, you know, the, the quality of Uranus versus the qualities of cardinal signs are a little bit more similar. They're not exactly mm -hmm. the same, but sure. particularly Aries is like it wants to jump on things and Uranus wants to make things happen quickly. And so I have seen a lot with clients that Uranus in Aries has almost sparked a recognition of something that was already latent and they've responded fairly quickly. And what I'm thinking about as Uranus comes into Taurus is this idea of Uranus being back in a fixed sign and there's more of a there's more tension between what a fixed sign, how that wants to operate versus the way Uranus wants to operate. And this is where I start to feel my age or experience with astrology is I remember when Uranus was in Aquarius, because like that's when I first started consulting with clients. And I remember the types of Uranus transits people were having were much more dramatic because when you have a natal planet in a fixed sign, it's going to want to resist whatever Uranus is bringing up. And so this little saying about, you know, it's better to bend a little or to break keeps playing in my mind as we think, as I think about the shift of Uranus, not just out of Aries, but out of a cardinal sign and into a fixed sign. And, you know, are we going to be able to bend or are we going to be really rigid? And, and then is something going to break basically? Right. I love that because they're not inherently flexible placements or fixed sign placements or, or the parts of our chart that are typically the most inflexible where yeah. you, you figure something out that you like and then you stick with it and you do it consistently and that's what's sort of comfortable to you. But then what happens when you get Uranus like coming through basically like a wrecking ball in that <laughs> part of your chart? 
Yeah. And look, so many of our listeners are, are piping up, the ones on the live uh, record. I see this. This is almost a cliche. Like you can take this to the bank. When Uranus transits the fourth house, the IC or the ruler of the fourth, the person becomes like a nomad where they don't necessarily have this permanent abode. Um, you know, they are on the move. They don't want to be bound by, and this was very particular, I think, with Uranus in Aries, which likes a little bit of independence anyway. So selling a home, separating from a partner, being on the go, Airbnb or renting rather than home ownership. It's been, that's a really common one I've seen with Uranus in Aries in the fourth or activating the IC. Um, what about you, Austin? Have you anything coming to mind for you on those fronts? Um, I'm uh, I'm in profound agreement with what you said about moving from a from a, a cardinal sign to a fixed sign. There's just more to disrupt in a in a fixed sign, and I, I think that's a great way to put it. Also, you know, Uranus volatilizes things; it throws things up in the air, and yeah. Aries is already kind of volatile. Um, and so, you know, there's almost an intensification of certain Aries patterns um, rather than a contradiction of them. Whereas, you know, Taurus is m- almost inarguably the most fixed of the fixed signs. Mm-hmm. And so there's a yeah. lot to, there's a lot, there are a lot of stable patterns to volatize. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um, just to wrap up, my Uranus transit has been through the third house over the past decade. And of course, like one year after Uranus went into Aries or within a year of it going into Aries into my third house of communication is when I started this podcast. So that's one of the other weird things about Uranus is sometimes things having to do with technology and like, you know, advancements in technology and things like that and leveraging those and whatever part of the chart Uranus is going through can sometimes be the case. And for me, it was unexpectedly starting a podcast and my communication style developing and changing and using technology in order to become more comfortable sort of communicating and over the course of the past decade if you go back we're at this is episode like 187 now but if you go back and listen to like episode 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 you just see that things are much different and you can sort of see my progression and developing uh not that I'm like an amazing like orator at, at this point but uh things have changed a lot over the course of the past 7 years that Uranus has been going through that sign and for me, it's been um, unexpected changes in my communication style, partially motivated by changes in technology and, and attempts to leverage that in order to create a platform for my voice or for astrology or whatever it is that I'm doing here on the podcast and on YouTube and other places. Totally, Chris. And, and even your online astrology classes, I suspect that they've all happened in that time frame as well, where you've been using technology to teach in a way that gets the information out there, but doesn't require you to be in a classroom every week, for instance. So yeah, you can really see. And this is where it's lovely. I think this is a great point you've made, you know, to get everyone to think back, you know, what has changed for you since 2010 when Uranus first went into Aries? Which part of your life have you really kind of radicalized or volatilized and and how has that been either freeing or exciting um for you hopefully yeah just figure out what whole sign house it's been transiting through relative to your rising sign and that'll give you a pretty good idea of some of the topics that should have come up and i think especially this month with uranus doing its final station there it's like that final exclamation mark it's that final looking back on what that has been about and sort of bringing some sense of completion or finality to those changes 
in preparation for moving out of that here in a couple of months when Uranus goes into Taurus in March and then will not return back to Aries for like 70 or 80 years or something like that. Yeah. All right. So totally. that's Chris, what's I going remember on. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say, Chris, I remember when you first took over the uh, I think it was the traditional astrology podcast, um, because you had me on two weeks after Uranus's ingress into uh, Aries in, in 2011, the final ingress. And I believe that was the first podcast I was ever on. It was right. It was, and that was when I have Mercury at two Aries. And so that was Uranus um, conjoining my Mercury within within two degrees and only two weeks after the ingress. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Traditional Astrology Radio was the first podcast. TraditionalAstrologyRadio.com was the first podcast I did that I inherited from somebody in 2010. So that's so funny, though. Think about that. How, you know, me doing the starting the podcast in 2011, 2012, Uranus going into my third, and then it's changed because then you ended up becoming involved in that, Austin, to the extent that you've started doing the forecast episodes and that's going through your career house and Kelly. It's also going through one of your sort of career workhouses and the interesting way that that sort of ties together. There's probably like other underlying like sinistry things, and obviously we yeah. each have things going on in our personal lives as well. But it's interesting. I don't know how that's all tied together in a weird way for us. So that's some of yeah. the thinking, looking back, sort of reflective things that I hope people do this month um, in the long term. Um, but that starts to set us up for. The rest of the year. Are there any other major transits in January that we need to touch on before we start start moving on here? I mean, it's worth mentioning that Mars is in Aries the whole month. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, um, you know, January January is, as you said initially, a showcase of a lot of what this year has to offer. Um, and January um, and between the the great difficulties that. Um, are augured by that Saturn Pluto South Node thing, um, and the 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 dreamy potential benefits of the Jupiter Neptune. And January in and of itself is very hot and cold in my estimation. There's like lots of fire and excitement on some days, and then there's lot, then there's lots of really, excuse me, there's lots of really heavy, cold, dry, you know, melancholic um, subjects on other days. Depending yeah. depending on whether the moon is uh, activating the fire stuff or the cap stuff, yeah. And look yeah. at this; it really starts off right on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, where it's like Mars moves into Aries on December thirty first, and then the very next day on basically New Year's Day, there's a Sun Saturn conjunction, really starting off the year. So we get that contrast right from the right from the start, opening up the year. Uh, yeah. Then then we have the solar eclipse, of course, and that's going to be the opening phase and the opening sequence. And something's going to start, um, especially in the part of your chart that that solar eclipse falls in, that's going to build up and then come to some sort of full manifestation six months later when there will be a lunar eclipse in Capricorn in the middle of the year. So people should pay attention to that solar eclipse if anything starts in their life, even if it's subtle or small or almost imperceptible, like a new development in your life. Because that's something that will build up and then eventually culminate six months later, probably at the lunar eclipse. Yeah. So, solar eclipse, um, lunar eclipse in Leo later in the month, of course, which we touched on. Jupiter Neptune squares, Mars going through Aries the entirety of January. Eventually, that brings us into February. And 
February is interesting because it partially opens with uh, Uranus has recently stationed direct in Aries as we talked about, and Mars actually catches up to it not too long after that, so that February is partially characterized by this this Mars-Uranus conjunction uh, that's yeah. going on right there at 29 degrees of Aries. Yeah, talk about going out with a bang. Uh, you know, this will this will obviously be the last Mars Uranus conjunction in Aries, um, but a lot of what we were just talking about in terms of the Uranus station, I think, is just amplified or activa- activated. You know, if there's one last little bit of Uranus in Aries stuff, um, either because you have a planet very late in the cardinal signs, or because there's this final wrap up piece of whatever Uranus in Aries has been stirring in your chart. It feels like we're getting that activation um, mid-February when Mars gets to Uranus. Right, Austin, definitely. any thoughts? Yeah, I think that that's about right. It catalyzes whatever whatever's left in Uranus, right? Whatever whatever's left to do for whatever is left in Aries for Uranus to do, Mars will will activate that. Um, uh, you know, your Mars Uranus conjunctions are um, extremely volatile, and you know Mars brings the the Mars brings the gunpowder, and Uranus brings the spark or the lightning. And so, you know, there are often you know um, violent incidents on the news around those times. Um, and it's important to keep your cool. It's extra important to keep an eye on your cool to make sure that it's still frosty when Mars is conjunct Uranus in Aries. Yeah, because for some people, that's going to be like an internal compulsion to suddenly make some of those changes and and a sort of drive to do so, which can sometimes be impulsive or like not well thought out. Uh, Whereas for other people, sometimes it can be a sudden, unexpected external sort of compulsion or thing thing that occurs that forces changes into your life somewhat unexpectedly and somewhat dramatically, especially with the Mars Uranus conjunction. Yeah. All right, so it looks like that's culminating around the 12th and 13th of February. Um, what else do we have going on in February? It looks like we've got a, a Venus-Saturn conjunction that also takes place that month around February 17th at about 16 degrees of Capricorn. Yep, Venus really gets beat up for about the last half of uh, February because Venus has it's not just Saturn. Uh, Venus has to conjoin Saturn and then Pluto and the south node and then get out of uh, and then get out of Capricorn it's rough and then once it does that it starts running into like squaring uranus yeah it looks like yeah. it squares uranus from 29 capricorn to 29 aries at the end of february around like the 28th yeah it's really that almost the entire second half um venus really needs to get into aquarius to get free nice and that whole sequence begins of course as soon as it Departs from Sagittarius and leaves Jupiter, the sign that Jupiter's in, and ingresses into Capricorn, which happens, it looks like about February 3rd. Venus shifts into Capricorn, and we have that shift, and then it starts building up to those conjunctions, and then finally that square. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the other shift, I, I really feel like we're going to be tracking or tuning into the transits of Mars as we go throughout 2019. That you know, as Mars alternates between hot and cold signs, uh, we're going to get, you know, Mars amplifying either Uranus, if Uranus is still in Aries or some of the Jupiter stuff. And in February, mid-month, Mars shifts into Taurus, which kind of 
tempers and cools things. You know, we get this very volatile, as Austin said, like the spark and the gunpowder and the lightning strike Mars Uranus at the end of Aries. And then Mars goes into Taurus and it's like, and that fight is done or that flame is over kind of thing. And we get a little bit more of a of a melancholic kind of tone with Venus in Capricorn for most of February and Mars in the second half shifting into another Earth sign as well into Taurus. Right. It looks like about February 14th, February 13th, February 14th is when Mars goes into Taurus. Yes. Right. On Valentine's Day for people who are into that type of thing. Yeah. Nice. As, and as a, as a note, it's er- relatively early in February that Mercury enters Pisces, which is mm. significant because Mercury um, will be yes. retrograde in Pisces for pretty much almost all of March. And will take into it will take well into April for Mercury to leave Pisces. So we're looking at a a, a rather overextended mm. period of Mercury and Pisces, and so that begins in uh, early mid Feb. Yeah, that's a great point, Austin, because it is about two months that Mercury will spend in Pisces. It'll conjunct Neptune three times as part of that process to do with the retrograde. So. We're going to get, uh, whether it's confusion or inspiration, you know, you may get a little bit of both or more of one um, than the other, you know, what's real, what's fake. That's going to be a little bit of a surreal kind of energy, I guess. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's weird that it's happening the same time, almost simultaneously as that Venus-Saturn conjunction. It's like the Venus-Saturn conjunction happens on the 17th of February, and then the very next day, by the 18th, Mercury forms its first conjunction with Neptune, which it'll eventually come back to. So it opens up like a sequence of events uh, with what will eventually be three conjunctions between Mercury and Neptune. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the 18th, 19th of Feb, the first one, I think the second will be late in March when, when Mercury is actually retro in Pisces. And then the third one will be early April. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of back to what we experienced with the last Mercury retrograde, which was like squaring Neptune, right? Yes. Okay. So some of those issues, like you're saying, involving like communication and, you know, accuracy of communication, whether communication is being done honestly, whether there's deception involved in communication, whether, um, you're being heard clearly by other people or whether other people are hearing something that's just like not at all what you're you're attempting to communicate. Yes. Yeah. So that's I think that was a great point that Austin made that you know we start that process in February and we're going to be dealing with the Mercury and Pisces vibe until mid-April. Sure. Okay. Um is there anything else about March that stands out? I mean I don't see so much uh, of that outer planet stuff happens in January. Uranus. Yeah, March is like Uranus into Taurus. Right. Yeah, I was just wrapping up February. So February oh, that we're, uh, yeah. we're good with. Sorry, maybe I said March. That's okay. Yeah, the only other little piece is the Saturn-Neptune sextile. We get the first activation of that in February. Um, it, you know, It's not necessarily like the most major aspect, but it's sort of the only other outer planet thing um, for 2019. Um, Got it. There it is. Yeah. Okay, so Saturn at 15, 14, 15, Capricorn sextiling Neptune at 14, Pisces. Yeah, and I don't, th- I don't think that's really going to change the whole Capricorn, Saturn, Pluto, South Node, you know, pressure point. It's just a, a tiny little bit of a, a different flavor coming in, but uh, 
I don't know that we'll, people people may notice it or, or may not notice it. I think it'll be more relevant if perhaps you've got planets around those degrees in those signs. Did you have any thoughts on that, Austin, or was that one less of a priority for you? Definitely less of a priority. I think it, it does a tiny bit of softening the, yeah. mm, the brutality of um, Pluto, South Node, Saturn. Um, you know, it's a little, it's, you know, it's a nice touch. Um, it, you know, it, it melts a few of the, the spikier outcroppings, but not, not in a terribly significant way. Yeah. Yeah. The ground is very dry and, you know, 10 drops of rain are not going to make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, you're grateful for those 10 drops. Totally. You would rather have them than not have them, but you're still, there's still the dryness. It's not like, oh, this changes everything. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, it is probably grounding, probably helpful and somewhat grounding for the Jupiter-Neptune square, which which itself is probably lacking in, in being grounded on some level. So it's nice having that Saturn-Neptune sextile happening simultaneously as a sort of grounding influence. Yeah, it's a nice little extra side piece um, to some of the other main events, I think, that are going on. And and again, we will get, you know, three activations of, of Saturn-Neptune. Um, yeah, I just I know Neptune's bringing some wetness and trying to create connectivity and and that emotional or even that kindness, but it, it's really you know it's trying to bring bring kindness into a den of lions or something, and uh, you know can only be so successful. Right. All right. So I believe that brings us then to March, and March, of course, the big huge thing I think that is the elephant in the room that we've already talked about is that Uranus moves into Taurus very firmly around March 5th, March 6th. We have the ingress of Uranus into zero degrees of Taurus, where it will stay for the greater part of the next decade, and it thus completes for the final time its transit through Aries, which it started way back around 2011. So Uranus and Taurus, we've talked about this a lot off and on at different points because it first dipped into Taurus, I think, last May for the first time, right? Before it retrograded out and went back into Aries for a few months. Yes. Uh, we went. I think Uranus went into Taurus in May and uh, left Taurus, uh, was it November? It was there for about six months. And now, now we're really getting set. So... Yeah, and I already like saw it. Like there's already people's lives who you started seeing it change in that area of their life pretty dramatically, depending on what whole sign house Uranus went dipped into. Um, I already started seeing some major changes, some major disruptions, some stuff sometimes coming out of left field, some of which was positive, some of which was more challenging, but definitely changes afoot already just from that that few months of Uranus sort of dipping into Taurus last year. Absolutely. Totally. It was real- um go ahead. Yeah, go Austin. You go. Okay, yeah. Um so for me it uh um it squared my Venus at two Aquarius. Um uh you know, pretty much right off the bat. And it moved into uh Kate, my wife's uh seventh house at the same time. And so for us that was um that was having to rethink a lot of our 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 practical dynamics because Kate went from working part-time to having a thriving full-time being a, having a thriving business and being a full-time entrepreneur and so you know kind of the way the, the 
the agreements we had about, well, you do this part and I do this, you know, the distribution of who's going to do what in this partnership, we had to rethink all of that because the, you know, like literally um, things changed and for the better. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was disruptive. Um, it just wasn't, uh, it was just a disruption by success rather than, you know, getting struck by lightning or I don't know, getting a car accident. Which makes sense because again, it hit the it hit my Venus and it moved into her seventh. So you see that in both charts. Yeah, and Austin, you make a really beautiful point around how a Uranus Venus transit does not have to mean the end of one's relationship, which is often something you know in consults with clients, people can be very concerned about. Uranus is going to be aspecting my Venus. Does that mean I'm de- doomed to be single for the, this entire transit? But I think the key there that you guys really experienced and your story really shows is it's about changing the dynamics. And, you know, it can be one person needing to do other things independently of the partnership because, you know, they've had this this, this success or maybe they're caring for a parent or what have you, but it doesn't mean that the love isn't there, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, what's interesting uh, upon reflection is, so this is uh, Uranus and Taurus, right? Taurus is, Taurus tends to indicate things that are actually things and stuff. Yes. And so it really didn't change our, you know, we didn't have to like do any deep soul searching. It was literally like, okay, well, who's going to do this housework and how much time do you have and how much time do I have? And I need to get this done. It was, you know, it, it was almost entirely practical in its disruption rather than, you know, being this, you know, some sort of uh, deep, deep review of emotional dynamics. It was more like, okay, well, who's going to do what? Yeah. Right. Which and is your, great. Your, and your ability to stay flexible, though, in those areas and to like adapt to the changing circumstances on short notice is part of what allows you to not be super upset or or to have that as a super distressing or offsetting influence, but instead it's just something you roll with. Obviously, there's some things that if, if you have a sudden unexpected change of things that can be harder to adapt to, you know, there's some things that are easier to adapt to and some things that are harder that that could be more challenging or could be experienced as more of a hardship, but at least for you, that was an area so far that's like, you know, okay, we, we can deal with this. This is, this is doable. Yeah, it was literally just practical problems to to solve. Um, one thing I would say about Uranus's ingress into Taurus is, you know, watch the news in the week leading up to it and the week after. Uranus ingresses almost always bring big events. Uh, Uranus's initial ingress into Taurus last year um, was accompanied by that almost unprecedented eruption, a uh, volcanic eruption ongoing in Hawaii, I believe. And then Uranus, if we think back, Uranus's um, ingress into Aries in 2011 was about two days away or a day or two um, previous to the Fukushima event. Um, mm-hmm. You know, big stuff. Um, and those are those are largely natural events, but you'll also see cultural eruptions as well around Uranus ingresses. So it's a great time for news watching. And it's also worth Beautiful. noting that Mercury stations retrograde within uh, like maybe 20 hours earlier than um, than Uranus ingresses. So that March 5th, 6th is pretty packed. That's my birthday also. So that'll be an, <laughs> that'll be an interesting solar return chart to have. Totally. And, you know, you think about that, like Mercury station retrograde in Pisces, Uranus ingressing into Taurus. There's going to be 
confusion or misinformation or, you know, oh my God, shocking stuff. It'll, it'll be a very dramatic 24 hour period. Yeah. Or it's, a, well, okay. I mean, to a certain degree, Mercury stationing retrograde is you need to, you know, whoa, like we need to slow down and sort this out is mm -hmm. sort of what Mercury's always saying on a retrograde station. And Uranus gives us new information to process. Like what is there to figure out? Well, there's <laughs> there's whatever Uranus's um, second and final ingress brings. Right. Yes. One of the things yeah. I think is going to be funny is I don't think we're prepared for how literal some of the Uranus in Taurus manifestations are going to be over the course of the next seven years. Like I was just watching, I think it was like a little Vice uh, clip like a news clip about how there's like a bunch of companies like racing to develop lab grown meat and how it's getting to the point where it's almost like sustainable and they feel like in the next year or two it's going to be affordable enough to start going mainstream so that they can start selling it to like fast food places and stuff like that of like actually developing like taking taking cells or cultured cells and then grow like growing you know like a steak or something out of that and how much how radically that will affect like the food chain but also things like pollution and like the environmental impact of things like that but then of course it'll be hugely disruptive to the is existing um like farmers or like cattle ranchers and stuff like that and so like the cattle ranchers are trying to fight it by you know changing laws about what's what can be defined as meat and if you can define something like that was grown in a lab as meat, or if you have to call it something else, it's just a great like little microcosm of what I think Uranus in Taurus is going to be about. And that if you really like really focused on some basic significations of Taurus, you could make some pretty insightful predictions about what sort of major radical changes are going to be happening in the world in the next seven to eight years. Yeah, that's perfect. And there's precedent for that. Um both the chocolate chip cookie and the potato chip were invented during Uranus's previous times in Taurus, and there were also um, significant advances in food processing technology. Brilliant. Yeah, I was, I was going to jump in there with the same thing. The food food technology, like um, a lot of it was actually driven, I believe, by World War II as well. But the food processing that happened last time Uranus was in Taurus, and they, they they look back in hindsight, things that in the first few years of Uranus in Taurus last time, they thought, these are amazing. This is going to change the food landscape. And then three or four years on, they're like, actually, this is a little bit Frankenfood-esque and we, it's not safe. We actually can't continue with this. Uh, certain things did continue, but we're going to see that explosion of of food technology, food processing, food storage and not all of it will want to will want to stick with. The other big topic that uh, was hugely activated on the last Uranus in Taurus and in previous ones is advancements in technology or changes in culture and society that gave more independence to women. Um, so, if we think the last time uh, we've got many young men going away to war, leaving factories and offices unmanned and unstaffed, and women were sort of allowed to come out of their homes and to take on roles or jobs in professional society that they were previously kind of socially not was not acceptable and there are some thinking that even though women had to kind of go back into the home after the war it was the the experience and that taste of freedom that women first had in Uranus in Taurus the last time round that was the precursor to a lot of the women's liberation movements of the 60s 
Uh, and then on and previous Uranus in Taurus in, um, ingresses, we've had uh, things like the spinning wheel and, you know, uh, things that made what was traditionally known as women's work easier or you could get it done faster. And it'll be interesting to see what, if any, types of shifts we get on that front um, in this cycle as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's such a literal example of Uranus being in Venus's sign and yeah. liberating, you know, who lives there. Um, I, it's also... Yeah. It's also just worth noting quickly that Uranus and Taurus um, also um, also sees um, revolutions or big changes in terms of currency and the way banking is done historically, and mm-hmm. that it, it's inevitably going to be it's inevitably going to coincide with the Internet of Things, with the uh, you know a further interface between the heavy physical things and the various digital systems. Um, you know, whether that's being able to Google where your keys are or 3D printing um, or uh, advances in robotics and artificial intelligence. It's, you know, Uranus and Taurus speaks to that that interface between the very abstract Uranian and the very heavy, solid, physical, real um, Taurian. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 3D printing accelerating would make a ton of sense because then it's like, very literal manifestation of just bringing technological innovation and advancement to like physical, tangible things, and that that was such a perfect sort of combination of those two concepts. Absolutely. So the past Uranus and Taurus dates you were talking about, Kelly, that was like 1934 through 1943, roughly. Yes. Yeah. The last, uh, the previous cycle, about 84 years ago. Um, I'm just yeah. animate, animating it now to see. Yeah. So yeah, those late late 30s, early 1940s. Yeah, and we did have Saturn join Uranus in Taurus for a portion of that time, mm. um, which obviously adds an extra dimension. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, just so people know, like coming out of the Great Depression post the 1929 stock market crash, and then you know leading up to World War II. Yeah, it coincided with a lot of the depression. Um, because you know the depression got started and then got worse and then started to get better and then got worse again. You know, the United States yeah. didn't really come out of the depression until World War II, and uh, and uh, Europe so was, was yeah. also uh, terribly financially stressed during that period of time. Sure. So, yeah. um, speaking of that, where how how is Saturn doing this month? So we're already into March. I guess we're not we're not quite there, but it's just Saturn is getting so close to Pluto, and I guess maybe we'll focus on that a little bit later when Saturn stations, which looks like it's what the following month in either yeah. April or early May, end of April at twenty cap. Okay. Um, yeah, so they do get so close this year; they're just not exact. Um, uh, hang on, oh, that's for May. Um, should we move on to April then, or do we have anything else in March that we want to mention? So we've got the the Mercury retrograde, which Austin mentioned, which is kind of a big deal uh, with Mercury stationing retrograde in Pisces in early March. And then um, going back, it conjoins Neptune again around March 24th for the second time, but it actually stations right there in the very same degree as Neptune at 16 Pisces. Uh, towards the end of March, stationing direct about March 28th-ish at 16 Pisces, while Neptune is also at 16 Pisces. We have 
that's a pretty intense um, Mercury direct station right on Neptune in Pisces. Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, as you said, it kind of it's pulling in, uh, uh, pulling in a lot of the themes that we talked about last Mercury retrograde cycle. Um, so that's going to be part of it as well. Just a just a bit to give yourself a few days before you finalize anything, just knowing there's a little bit of that cosmic confusion. Right. All right. So, uh, Austin, anything about March or should we go to, to April? I mean, I think it's basically, yep, Uranus is in, Uranus moves into Taurus and Mercury is um, drunk out of his mind the whole month. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dazed and confused. Perfect. All right. So moving into April, uh, what do we have going on here? Mercury is now direct and it starts to try to get it get out of uh, the, the clutches of Neptune while Venus has moved into Pisces and it's actually coming up to a conjunction with Neptune in mid-Pisces and then eventually Mercury. Um, Mars has moved into Gemini, it looks like, by the very end of March and early April. It starts moving through the early degrees of Gemini. Um, yeah, and this really picks up the pace. If you compare, um, if you compare Mercury retrograde in Pisces with the Sun in Pisces and Mars in Taurus, that is slow. Whereas now, mm. as April begins, we have the Sun already in Aries, and then with Mars in Gemini, and there's probably no greater contrast of speed um, than that, which is between uh, Mars in Taurus versus Mars in Gemini, and with the Sun in Aries, we have that speedy Mars in Gemini ruling the Sun. Right, so it's really things things start moving um, and becoming much more active, active and activated. It also puts, um, you know, that also puts the Sun and Jupiter in configuration with uh, Jupiter and Sag again. The Sun by trine and Mars by opposition. So that's a that's that really emphasizes the the active fiery. Let's get moving stuff. So Mars yeah. is kind. Of, it was just, just you know, Mar basically April is much faster than March. <laughs> you can get a lot more done in April, especially if you felt like you're a little bit drunk or lethargic in March. And there's yeah, a and one of the things that's happening is notice um, Jupiter actually stations. It does its first station in Sagittarius around April 9th at 24 degrees of Sagittarius. So we have a bit of an intensification of Jupiter in those later degrees of Sag, and then it starts moving backwards um, into the earlier and, and returning back to some of the earlier degrees or middle middle degrees of Sagittarius. Yes, yeah, that's that's a huge station for April. But I do agree with Austin with Mars getting back into a hotter sign. We just we are going to see more forward momentum. You know, Mercury's finally going to come out of Pisces. Uh, and move into Aries, and we, you know, an, a lovely little extra for April is that we do have Venus in Pisces for most of the month. Yeah, it, it's um, it, I, I've been eyeing that for elections. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be lovely. All right, um, yeah, that looks good. And then so we start moving through April, and towards the end of it, the other major outer planet thing that I noticed is that we get Saturn. It gets so close to Pluto. It gets within like three degrees. So Saturn makes it to about uh, 20 degrees of Capricorn by the end of April. And Pluto at that point is at 23 degrees of Capricorn. But then Saturn stations retrograde at 23 degrees and 31 minutes of Capricorn. 
uh, very closely actually conjunct the south node, which is also at 20 degrees of Capricorn at that time. So this is one of the major Saturn stations this year where we get an intensification of Saturn in Capricorn pretty closely conjunct Pluto and conjunct the south node. Uh, and this is happening at the end of April, around April uh, 29th, April 30th. Yay. Yeah, I'm definitely watching. Sorry, Austin. I said, yay. <laughs> yay. Dripping well, yeah, in this, so this, is, <laughs> this is the first time that we're going to get really intense sort of preview of that Saturn Pluto conjunction, but it's also one of the first times that it's happening with Uranus now in Taurus. And I know one of the things that a lot of astrologers are kind of nervous about is the um, constrictive um, nature of Saturn. And perhaps some of the the more um, constrictive and, and I'm trying to think of the word like pulling back or conservative sort of financial associations that that has, uh, and some of the concerns about that being related to just the sort of worldwide financial situation going into more of a sort of pulling back phase for a while. Well, that's already happened, um, and this is. Um... And the, the markets have been trying to ignore it, but they can't at this point. It's getting near uh, – it is arguably officially in bear market territory already. Um, this this configuration is super bad for money. Uh, well, for uh, money on, on that financial global level, and it's especially bad for the United States. It's basically how 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 bad does it get and how quickly over this next year, and then does it get worse next year? Or how much worse does it get? You know, we're we're way overdue for a recession. The fundamentals aren't there, et cetera, et cetera. There's no like, no, it could be just fine. Um, like, there's a lot of stuff ready to break. And uh, Saturn, Pluto, and the South Node all together, and the United States, Sibley second, um, is <laughs> is a hundred percent ready to break it. Yeah, I guess I just people may even underestimate how much. The Saturn Pluto contacts and the closeness that that gets simultaneous almost with that Uranus ingress, how much that might accelerate some of that stuff and lead to some of the key turning points that when people look back on it, end up seeing those as like the pivotal turning points during that process of unfolding over the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and particularly on when uh, with the eclipses happening there the eclipses are going to the first one of the year will accelerate it and then the second one which we'll get to in uh July is going to set it on fire right yeah absolutely it's there's a lot of um you know the psychological quality of fear and concern or you know paranoia i don't think it's unfounded i think it's you know with good reason but particularly as we get saturn on the south node and we will have that three times throughout 2019. We're going to see a lot of that concern, uh, fear-based, uh, you know, talk collectively about money. And you know, when I think about Saturn in Capricorn and its approach to say personal finance, it's very much about making sure you've got that buffer, or that you're not overextended, that you have got, that you're living very conservatively. Um, you know, within your means and that you are not overextended with leverage or with debt. They're the types of things that can really blow up under this type of configuration. And, you know, I'm no expert on, you know, global finance, but I, you know, I'm certainly expecting the same to be true where countries have overextended or overcapitalized. 
that's where we're going to see a huge um, that the balloon pops basically, and, and things come back down to earth with with a great thud. Yeah, and so yeah. one one of the things that I think Saturn and the South Node and Pluto all have to say that relates to the financial, um, but also extends to the personal. It's very much about shedding uh, old, worn-out patterns, patterns that uh, patterns of organization and control that aren't working anymore. Um, you know, uh, the global financial system is one example of that, where there are a lot of the way that we're doing things doesn't, you know, is unsustainable. But the that same configuration m- makes the same request or statement um, on a personal level, right? It's where this is about. Um, you know, this is about basically Saturn shedding skin, like your ideas of mm. of what responsibility is, uh, your ideas about what control is, where to be controlling and where to be flowing. Um, this is also, um, you know, the Saturn, uh, Saturn South Node Pluto um, configuration is also chock full of family issues. Um, you know, if if that's occurring in any place that's um, remotely um, personal and emotional in the life, uh, whether it's a house or it's configured to the ruler of a house, say the fourth, there's a lot of uh, parental and ancestral stuff that um, that trio is going to stir up. A lot of old patterns. Mm. Yeah, it's it's old patterns. You know, it always makes me think of like my grandparents and the kind of patterning and programming they had about money and about security and then how that how their fears filtered in to their parenting style of my dad and how that has filtered into how he has raised us and it you know it doesn't always have to be hugely traumatic but it, I think it's really important to bring some clarity or awareness to the way that those ancestral patterns are still informing you or driving you today I think that's a beautiful point that you make Austin around the family lineage, you know, not just your personal childhood, but how that fits into the story of your of your family going back a few generations. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, just 100%. like talking to, I remember that was one of the things that was interesting about that generation that lived through or grew up during the Great Depression is even things as simple as like food and how some of the patterns surrounding like eating where like a lot of them grew up with less ability to like eat freely and so they would make the most out of whatever little they had and then later that would like even later in life once they were more comfortable or financially successful and and things like food were less scarce that would like build in certain patterns where you know I'd meet with like grandparents who lived during that who would just make sure that they would always like finish their plate for example when they were eating something because they grew up in a period in which you had to just like eat everything that you could at that time because food was otherwise so scarce and thinking about some of those like going through a period like this of greater constriction and and what sort of dealing with less in some other area and, and how that might affect like a sort of entire generation of people as as we go through a period like this right now yeah um what got me thinking along those lines is that the saturn and south node together form a two planet uh, a couple two planet yogas and uh, vedic mm-hmm. astrology one of them is um basically translates to ghost yoga or unhappy ghost yoga and it, if it's in a natal chart it means that um the person will be disturbed by um ancestral issues that are um for generally further back than just the parents 
you know, everybody has, you know, mommy and daddy issues. Um, but the, uh, but this is more like, you know, this is the, that combination indicates that you should look back further, generally speaking. And it also, um, that South, the K2 Saturn also forms, mm. I think it's pronounced Shraddhana yoga. It basically means funeral yoga. And um, it indicates difficulties from improperly mourning one of your parents. And so mm. it, th these are both, um, you know, these are both pointing to the same thing, the unresolved, South Node Saturn, unresolved past, um, re relating and pertaining to the present. And so globally, we're definitely at a period of time where, you know, we sort of made it through the 20th century by the skin of our teeth and, and the 19th century. And so much has changed and so much trauma has occurred historically that, you know, is haunting us like crazy right now. And so it's also why I bring up the 19th and both the 19th and 20th centuries is we are just about at the end of the um the the 200 ish year triplicity cycle and we're just about to switch yes. into a new 200 year cycle and so we're at the very end and and um not only are able to look back but have a duty to look back um at every you know how we got here and um to maybe spend some time thinking about you know uh, resolving or finding some peace with or um, what's happened as well as maybe not carrying those patterns forward. Yeah. And well, the, what that makes me think of is, and I'm glad you said that is it's not, even, we don't even have to go that far back. We could even think back to remember um, the 2008 financial crisis coincided with Pluto going into Capricorn. And I remember some astrologers like Michael Luton getting a lot of press at the time for kind of calling that. And uh, Pluto ingresses into Capricorn, and then we have the worldwide financial crisis. And when you're talking about like learning the lessons of the past, Austin, that makes me wonder: with Saturn now catching up to Pluto and conjoining it there in Capricorn, as we're much further now, a decade later, into Pluto's overall transit through Capricorn, the question of sort of worldwide were some of the lessons of the 2008 financial crisis learned and taken to heart, or are some of the same? Weaknesses uh, and sort of shortcomings in the worldwide financial system still present and still sort of dangerous on some level. Yeah, these are really interesting points, and I I know that the financial sector is going to feature highly in 2019. And then then I also think 2008 we had Jupiter in Capricorn with Pluto, and I my greatest nervous kind of energy you know around the money sector comes once jupiter moves into capricorn itself and joins saturn and pluto there um that's obviously later in 2019 not to say that what happens with the the financial sector is not going to be difficult in 2019 but i think it gets a little more difficult once jupiter gets into capricorn uh later in the year so and I it's interesting 100 percent sorry go austin yeah, I, I don't say, yeah, want to scare I it, people. Yeah, it gets worse in 2019, and then I would say if we're looking for a bottom, that's 20. You know, as we're looking for how bad is it going to get, we're going to need to wait until 2020 to see that. Yeah, right. Because that's the weird thing. Most of this year, where Jupiter going through Sagittarius is like really the thing that's counterbalancing and is helping out a lot of these transits, or is like offsetting them. Especially this summer, once we start getting some really crazy stuff in June and July. In the Earth signs, especially, uh, a lot of the planets eventually come out of it and move into Leo, where they start getting trines from Jupiter and stuff gets rectified or balanced out a little bit. But we really 
kind of lose a little bit of that later in in 2019 when as you said Kelly Jupiter goes into it leaves Sagittarius and goes into Capricorn yeah I mean it feels to me like Jupiter and Sag from a, a financial sector or a topic the financial topic if you like Jupiter and Sag is a little bit of a buffer or a protection or it's something is still being propped up and this is what happened in 2007 which was the last time we had Jupiter and Sag the the stock markets were kind of you know going crazy and in the US you guys had these um well, not you guys personally, but the US itself had these subprime mortgages. You know, the banking sector was a gong show in the US in 2007 and people were making money left, right and center. And it all fell apart in 2008 because it was like, you know, building a house of cards. Um, the one sort of slight qualifier I want to throw in here is that the 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 protector, if you like, of the Saturn in Capricorn with the South Node and Pluto if you're working in an environment, either personally or collectively at a country level, where there has been more structure or more rules or more of a generally conservative approach to money, there will be less of a fall to have. I'm not saying there won't be any kind of fall, but if things are not excessively inflated, the come down isn't as dramatic or there isn't as far to fall. And an example of that is the difference in terms of what happened with the banking industries in the States versus in places like Australia or Canada in 07 and 08. Banking industries in Canada and Australia are much more heavily regulated. It didn't mean there weren't problems in 2008, but we didn't have banks going under like the US did. And so I think there's a little bit of um, there'll be some country-specific instances here of more or less extreme based on general financial and banking practices within different organizations. Right. And based on like the natal chart of the country and stuff like that. And if they have, for example, a bunch of, let's say, Cancer or Capricorn placements. Yeah. I mean, obviously the US is, is you know, it's a, it's a country that affects the entire global economy and it, it is being very directly hit by this. So, you know, I didn't want to sort of sound like I was overlooking that for sure. No, that was a great point. The it's like different countries will react differently based on because that also goes back to and speaks to even like natal placements, for example, where I often mm-hmm. see people that have Saturn in its own sign, like in in Capricorn or Aquarius or even Exalted in Libra, they tend to experience the Saturn return a bit more positively or more constructively as a general rule. Other factors aside. Um, and you're probably speaking to something pretty similar on more like a national level where if you have some of those Capricorn placements more well-placed, then you'll probably tend to weather a major transit like this a little bit better than those that, that don't. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a level for some personal experience there for sure. Um, well, I don't know, Austin, what are your thoughts? Do you think it's just all going to hell in a handbasket? No. Well, I mean- no, I, well, I, I think that it will. No, well, I think it will look that way at certain points, um, and people will certainly feel that way. And so, you know, you can't change history, but you can minimize your exposure to, um, you know, to what's in the to the systems that are in the crosshairs of the Saturn South Node Pluto yeah. thing, right? You know, like not not over investing in you know in something that in a bubble that's going to pop. Um, and, you know, figuring out, fig- you know, fi- again, just minimizing exposure and coming up, I would say that mm, part of 
maybe everyone's homework for 2019 uh, as we're about to begin it um, in maximizing the the potential benefit of Jupiter and Sagittarius is to come up with plan B and C. You know, if your industry, um, you know, if your industry is affected by downsizing and jobs get harder, like, you know, have a plan already in place so that you're like, okay, well, that happened. Plan B is already in place. I don't have to think about it in the middle of a crisis and freak out. Like having your having having options for not just the best case scenario. I'm actually curious what that'll be like for the three of us because all of us have had our professional careers sort of develop and take off in the upswing of like the worldwide economy over the past decade or so, and what what the astrological community is like in in during more of like a, a downturn. Yeah, astrology is pretty recession. It will be interesting. It's actually counter cyclical in some ways. Yeah, it's it is counter cyclical because when people are more struggling, they're more likely to look for insight. Um, I mean, I know that's but, what people say, and that's the common wisdom, and and that's often said by people, especially outside the astrological community. But I still, it's still kind of like a luxury thing, and and I wonder. When people have less discretionary spending, if astrology isn't one of the things that's like, you know, that you can you can I don't know get away with doing without in some instances I don't know. Yeah, uh, there was a I don't know if it was two thousand eight two thousand nine or if it was a couple of years later. I actually had a really like a bit of a boom period, and I remember saying to clients at the time, talking about this counter cyclical kind of quality to astrology as an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it will be interesting to observe, um, and I think what Austin said there around like insulating or protecting yourself, like you know, the biggest way to minimize your exposure with these types of configurations in Capricorn with Saturn so heavily involved is to reduce your debt, reduce your expenses, put to pull back before you need to pull back so that you've got um, some breathing room if, you know, worst case scenario does come to pass. Right. Yeah. That's really great advice. I think this year and going into next year. Yeah. Um, and so, right. one, so we could talk about that for the rest of, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much like Saturn <laughs> Pluto. So much going. of this <laughs> dominates the um, year, but it's so funny because we don't even fully get there. We don't get to the exact Saturn Pluto conjunction until early January 2020. T- yeah. So early next year, but it's still like we don't really need threatening. To, we don't, yeah, we don't need to. And, and that's what we're going to learn. Mm. We're, we're going to get a really stark reminder that like an exact aspect does not need to go exact and even once it gets within a few degrees it's already active we're going to see especially in april when we get that station of saturn within three degrees of pluto that'll be a really good example and sort of test of that yeah all right um let's keep moving uh so we've gone through april that brings us to may uh what are the major highlights of may i'm seeing already at the very beginning of the month like a Mars Jupiter opposition at 23 Sag and 23 Gemini that goes exact at the beginning of the month. Um, what else are you guys seeing? For the month of May, I'm just getting my notes here. Um, so May, it's like, yeah, we've got Mars Jupiter. Where's Mars? Mars is in Gemini. Yeah, yeah. it's in Gemini. It opposes Jupiter at 23. Um, Sag on the 5th of May, it looks like. Um, Saturn's retrograde and starts separating from Pluto. Mercury goes into Taurus around the 6th. 
Um, yeah, I think Mars Jupiter is sort of what's happening in May. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a lot a- happening this month. Um, I think the um, the ingress of Mars into Cancer is probably worth noting because um, that's amplifying uh, some of what we've been talking about with the Capricorn emphasis. You know, we're putting Mars into the sign opposite Saturn and Pluto. It's just going to really highlight that ca- that Cancer Capricorn axis, um, which is hugely affected by the eclipses this year. But yeah, I think that mid-May Mars into Cancer, and Mars will obviously be in Cancer right through to the end of June. Um, so that's that, and yeah, um, Mars opposite Jupiter. Um, yeah, and actually, now that since Austin stepped away for a minute for a break, this would actually be a great time. I forgot to to mention. Oh the, yeah, the featured. Yes. Electional chart. So um, every month I we feature a electional chart uh, where we find the most auspicious electional chart we can find. And Lisa Scheim is our, our primary electional astrologer and her and I do a podcast each month for patrons called the Auspicious Elections Podcast where we try to find four or five of the best electional charts we can find for Starting different types of ventures or, or new undertakings each month, like starting a business or getting married or going on a major journey or a trip or something like that. And um, each month in the forecast episodes, we always feature one of the best electional charts that we could find for the following month. So we had a bit of a debate this month about whether we should feature one that would be like the best election for the entire year or whether we should just feature. The best election for January, and we decided to focus on just featuring one for January instead of trying to pick out the entire year. Because I'm actually in the process of recording, and I'm going to release this week a a, a sort of new electional report that we're going to sell on the podcast website, which is going to feature the most auspicious election we can find for each month over the course of the next twelve months. So we found twelve different electional charts for each month. And that's something we're gonna uh, going to offer. So here's the chart that I found for January, or, or that Lisa found for January, I should say. So this chart is actually coming up really fast. It it takes place on January second, two thousand nineteen, starting around ten thirty, ten twenty nine in the morning, with about mid Pisces rising. So as mid Pisces rising, the ruler of the ascendant is Jupiter, which is placed in Sagittarius in its own sign. In the tenth whole sign house in a day chart, so this is pretty much the most positive or most benefic Jupiter you could you could possibly get. Uh, the Moon is also in Sagittarius in the tenth house, and it's applying to a conjunction with Jupiter within thirteen degrees, and that's one of the next aspects that the Moon is actually going to make is that applying conjunction with Jupiter, which is very positive since in an electional context the applying aspects of the Moon indicate the future and the separating aspects indicate the past. Uh, Mercury is also in Sagittarius up there in the 10th house. Uh, Venus is in Scorpio in the 9th house. We have a Sun-Saturn conjunction that's separating in the 11th house in Capricorn. The only downside with this chart is it's not super great for financial matters because it has Mars in the 2nd house in Aries, although there is some mitigations because Mars is in its own sign and Jupiter is configured to Mars through a superior uh, sign-based trine. So it's taking a little bit of the edge off of Mars, but despite that, it's mainly just a good chart for tenth house career type matters or matters having to do with reputation and public perception, um, even if it's not amazing for financial matters. So that is the electional chart. What do you guys think of the electional chart for for January? 
I uh I, I had already planned on releasing my podcast on January second because it was about as good as I could find in the next several weeks, and I'm very happy with it. Brilliant. Good. This will be Austin's something similar to Austin's podcast chart then. Um, yeah, because it's just a really amazing chart for taking advantage of that Jupiter in Sagittarius, which is something I feel like we need to really take advantage of this year while we have it for the next several months between now and December when it leaves and goes into Capricorn is just when you can take advantage of an electional chart where, where Jupiter is in a great position in Sagittarius, make it the ruler of the ascendant in order to take full advantage of that. Well, and yeah, one, that's totally correct. And then two, this relates back to what we were talking about in terms of handling a year where we know there are some really rough configurations and preparing for that. One one thing that's basically free um, is doing things with good timing, right? Right. Like, like yeah. you, give the, you give an election away. If you're going to do stuff anyway, it doesn't cost you anything to do it at the right time. And even if it... Even if there was, um, you know, even if you wanted to do a paid thing for more elections, it's like, oh, it's twenty bucks or it's fifty bucks. By doing something business um, related, would you not? By doing that at the right time, could you not make an extra twenty bucks? Um, of course you could. And so, you know, remember, don't you know? It's important, and this is part of the Saturn South Node thing in general. Is with the South Node sort of trying to clean out. Um, excessive Saturn is don't think about what you can't afford. Think about the moves, and this is very Jupiter and Sedge. Think about the moves that you have, the advantages you have, the leverage you have that's free or might as well be free, and use that. Yeah, that's great advice for this year. Take take, take advantage or, or identify your positive traits or skills or the things that you have going for you, and try to max maximize those as much as possible. Yeah, I like that. I'm just very pro Moon in Sag this year as a general theme, um, especially if it's applying to <laughs> Jupiter directly. Yeah, and that is exactly what we're trying to take advantage of in this chart. And that's why, even though it's so early in the month, so it's going to happen pretty soon after we release this episode, we wanted to highlight it for people so they can take advantage of that if they hear this episode of the podcast in time. If you don't otherwise, uh, Lisa and I otherwise put out at the end of each month a podcast called the Auspicious po Elections Podcast, where we release four auspicious electional charts for each month. Uh, so you can find out more information about that uh, on our page on Patreon. It's a benefit of the five and ten dollar tiers. Uh, if you go to theastrologypodcast.com/slash/subscribe, and then also in the next few days, I'm going to be announcing through our newsletter the. Um, auspicious elections yearly report that we're going to be releasing as well, which is probably going to be a recording and a written report with one auspicious election chart for each month for those that need something more long-term. All right, so um, where does that leave us? Are we still in May? I think we're, we're pretty much getting finished with May and it's time to start moving into what I think astrologers have sort of universally agreed is the most active and, and somewhat tense part of the year once we get into June and July, right? Yeah. It, it, There's it, just a lot going on. Yeah. Oh, you mean the meat grinder? Yeah. <laughs> the meat grinder. That's your that's your title, the subtitle for this part of the year for June and July. Yeah, that's it's either it's a toss up between the meat grinder or the lament configuration. 
which is the, the lament configuration is the pattern of unlocking the box in Hellraiser that brings the, uh, the Cenobites <laughs> in. So again, either meat grinder or lament configuration. Very, very good. Very evocative. Um, so part of that, by the time we get to June, of course, is Kelly and I were talking about Mars uh, going through Gemini in May and eventually opposing Jupiter at one point. But what happens is about mid-May, Mars goes into Cancer, mm. and this begins sort of a weird time frame where Mars starts moving towards the North Node. Uh, we start getting prepped up for some eclipses in Cancer and Capricorn, and Mars starts getting very close to and then eventually is going to oppose Saturn and Pluto and Capricorn. So yeah. I'm just animating it now. It looks like Mercury eventually joins Mars in Cancer and it moves in around June 4th, June 5th. Mercury goes into Cancer. Uh, and then eventually later in June, of course, the Sun makes its yearly ingress around June 20th, 21st into Cancer, joins Mercury and Mars in that sign. Uh, yeah, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at um, Mars opposes Saturn, it looks like, around the middle of June, June 14th, June 15th, from uh, 18 degrees of Cancer to 18 degrees of Capricorn. Mercury catches up to Mars basically right about the same time, and then it opposes Saturn from 18 degrees of Cancer to 18 Capricorn around June 16th. Uh, then Mercury catches up with Mars and conjoins it at about 2021 Cancer around the 17th or 18th of June. And then the whole process repeats with Pluto, where Mars and uh, Mercury get to 22 Cancer and oppose Pluto at 22 Capricorn around the 19th. So that's fun. That's what. You, <laughs> that's part of what you guys are talking about. That's the beginning. Yes. That's the, that's, that's the beginning. The, okay. The beginning. Yeah, but that's that is definitely a few days there between you know 14th, 15th of June, right up to the 20th, 21st of June. That just feels there's there's a um like an entanglement quality where you're kind of stuck in something and you, you it might be tricky to to pull things apart it it's very um fraught and fractious and there's emotions and and with mercury and mars together in the mix you know people are saying things but it's not always coming out right and and the feeling of of you know there's this big boulder or this big barrier that is just putting pressure um, I keep thinking about the Mars-Saturn aspects for 2019 as like being caught between a rock and a hard place where you feel a bit damned if you do or damned if you don't. Um, and that idea of, what did you call it, the meat grinder, Austin? I mean, yes, the, the you're such grinder. a way with words. <laughs> the meat grinder. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know that we'll, I think this will be a melancholy fractious frustrating few days in june oh, i think it's going to be more than a few days um this is you know just from a technical perspective this is a this is um all of the malefics opposing each other like this is you know it i, I think it's Im probably important not to undersell this like it, this is really ugly mm. and it's more than just a few days Ugh. yeah it, it, so it's a whole sequence of a series of a bunch of stuff bouncing back and forth between 
Cancer and Capricorn for like a couple of months that really centers on June and July. Uh, because what happens not long after that, the next part of the sequence, I think, is the subsequent eclipse, right? Uh, actually, no. Mm. Uh, so I, I was going through this day by day uh, earlier. So um, so get, okay. when we get towards the end of June, you're like, oh, good. Mercury moves out of uh, Mercury and Mars both move out of Leo. And I was like, oh, that really takes the pressure off. No. Um, Mercury then stations retrograde conjunct Mars to come back into Cancer. In right, uh, right as we're getting ready for the next eclipse, you know, if you want, if you want a so uh, okay, so you know, an astrological leaves um, configure Cancer moves into Leo, June twenty sixth, twenty seven, and it's slowing down, and then it stations Mars goes into Leo, and then Mercury Mercury stations retrograde, July seventh, July eighth. And Mars catches up to it and overtakes it at that point. So just when Mercury thinks that it, it got away from Mars, Mars catches up to it and conjoins it again for a second time. Yep, and it's uh, and we have uh, we have that retrograde station and Mercury Mars conjunction taking place within a two degree orb square to Uranus. Wow. Okay. So it's not just Mars like overtaking, but it's like a surprise square from Uranus at the same time. Uranus being at six degrees of Taurus at this point, and Mercury and Mars conjoining at four degrees of Leo around July 8th. Which is right after the eclipse, the solar eclipse in Cancer. Oh yeah, that's cute. So the solar eclipse has taken <laughs> place uh, on July 2nd at about 10 degrees of Cancer. And that is a that is a solar eclipse. So that is like the first yeah, that's the first solar eclipse in Cancer, so that's opening up a whole new sequence, basically, right? Or it's it's giving us the other side of the Cancer Capricorn dance, right? So yeah, and yeah, go ahead. You go, Austin. I was just going to say, so you know, just in terms of the lived sequence, um, you know, we just got done with this Mars Saturn um, on the nodes thing, and then we get the solar eclipse, and then Mercury stations retrograde conjunct Mars and, and square Uranus. Um, so that part of why I was calling it the meat grinder is that it's not just like, oh, it's a rough couple days or it's, ooh, that two weeks is is rough. It's like when it's like that there was phase one is the Mars part. And then phase two is the eclipses pinging the same axis while we have Mercury retrograde and uh, with a particularly malefic Mercury retrograde station with a conjunct Mars. So it's like, uh, you know, the round two is rough. Round two is similarly rough to round one, but for slightly different reasons. Yeah, look, I, I agree completely, Austin. I think that the whole sequence, um, as soon as Mars enters Cancer, you know, we're in, we're on the battlefield, if you like, and it doesn't feel until the sun leaves Cancer, you know, it, it's, there are peaks within those periods, but the combination of Mars traveling through Cancer with all the oppositions and activations, even the early Leo stuff, which you've identified. But I think, you know, I'm not really relaxing or taking a breath until the sun gets into Leo and out of that, at least, at least the sign opposition there too. Yeah. That, my thinking is almost identical. I, I looked at the, the new moon in Leo as being the sort of um, mm -hmm. the first reset because we have to do the eclipse that's showing now, which is the July 2nd eclipse. 
And then we have to go, which is the solar eclipse in Cancer. And then we've got to do the lunar eclipse in uh, in Capricorn, which is on this same, in Capricorn. on the same axis. And then the sun's got to move to into Leo. And then when the moon catches the sun in in Leo, we have we have our first non-eclipsed um, lunation in quite some time. And I believe the new moon in Leo is also very close to Mercury's direct station. So we we finally it's basically going to take till August. Yes. August 1st. Yeah. And yeah, and he, August 1st, new moon in Leo, Mercury station. And and here's the lunar eclipse. So the yes. lunar eclipse is at 23 oh. degrees of Capricorn or 23-24 uh July 16th it looks like. Oh, and one of the things I wanted to mention, one of the other things that's like really that too, you have poor Venus moving through tender Cancer and getting brutalized by the same Cancer Capricorn yeah. opposition stuff um, you know, uh during this period of time. I I uh yeah. I call I call cheating on the part of the uh planets. I think that's um I think that's deeply unfair. Yes, to lose uh, cuz I, I think Venus in Cancer has some really nice attributes, but she's going to encounter a lot of uh opposition or interference, if you like. Yeah. Uh, in this particular iteration. Right. She's almost exactly opposed to Saturn from 16 Cancer to 16 Capricorn when that lunar eclipse in Capricorn goes exact on the 16th of July. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. And um, so that's all going on. And So is that the end of it like when does this end like we get the lunar eclipse then about august 1st the new moon uh in leo in early august also coincides with mercury's direct station we also have venus out of there now and so it's pretty much it basically um things reset in a in a much less horrible um uh it Things reset into a much more pleasing configuration, which is by no means perfect, but infinitely preferable to June and July. August begins a, a very different um, storyline and focus. Sure. And it looks like it wraps up on the very, very last day of July. July 31st, there's a new moon at eight degrees of Leo. Uh, Mars is still in Leo. It's at 19 degrees. So it's still sort of in the mix in a way. And at this time, um, Mercury is stationing direct at twenty three Gemini or twenty three Cancer, uh, still kind of getting opposed by Pluto and and some of that stuff. Right, but it's moving away from Pluto. Right, when Mercury is mm. retrograding back, it was getting closer to all that mess. Whereas now it's like, and I'm not actually going to oppose you exactly. Let's move on. And I, um, Mars in Mars co present in Leo with the Sun, Moon, and Venus is certainly. Uh, worth noting, but um, it's one malefic as opposed to a whole axis just racked up with every malefic or almost every malefic. Um, and so, you know, you can handling one malefic at a time is no big deal. It's when you get the, you know, it's when it's when problems are compounded um, by multiple, uh, you know, by multiple malefics that, um, you know, you get trouble. Yeah. And I go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say, yeah, and this is one of the the contrasts that does play out throughout 2019 is these planets in Leo have escaped from the problems in Capricorn and they are now at least picking up a little bit of the support or the relief of Jupiter and Sag. Oh, yeah. So 
you know, part of the issue of the Cancer Capricorn axis in 2019 is it doesn't get any help from Jupiter. It's problem after problem after problem without the relief or the outlet of Jupiter. And I I totally agree with you, Austin, that once the planets start ingressing into Leo, we're getting these incremental levels or layers of relief or improvement. Like there's still a problem, but as you said, one problem is manageable, especially if you've got a little bit of uh, support from Jupiter. Yeah, that whole sign trine um, from Jupiter and Sagittarius to everything in Leo is glorious. And the points where those those trines perfect is, um, you know, sweet relief. Yeah, it's bringing in a sort of rectification or like resolution of something and like stabilizing it after the sort of uh, tumultuousness of June and July. Because here we can see, for example, the sun exactly yes. trines Leo August 6th. The, the sun hits 14 Leo and trines Jupiter at 14 Sag. Then a couple days later, we get Venus hits 14 Leo and trines Jupiter at, at 14 degrees of Sag on August 8th. Then eventually, like Mercury makes its way, starts picking up steam again after stationing direct, and makes it to 14 degrees of Leo by August 20th, and again trines Jupiter. And at this point, uh, by August 18th, August 17th, 18th, Mars is finally departed from Leo and moves into Virgo. Well, and so, totally. so um, just to make sure we don't skip over it, you know, from Mercury's ingress into Leo onward, so we've got about 10 days where we have yeah. four visible planets or you have four traditional planets in the same sign, all in Leo. Um, and then that stellium is actually going to get tighter and then we're going to get four planets in Virgo for uh, for some weeks, which is pretty unusual. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a beautiful point that you made in our show notes, Austin, that we've got this sort of uh, fast-moving traditional planet pile-up where we've got the Leo emphasis and then the Virgo emphasis, which is unusual. We've got to have the Sun and Mars in the same sign, which can only happen every second year. And then we have to have Mercury and Venus you know, close enough to the Sun that they're all in the same sign while Mars is there with the Sun. Yeah, it's really interesting. What, you know, what we're looking at is three, uh, super- three planets making a superior conjunction to the Sun in like a month, which is pretty rare. Right, we have uh, the Venus Sun superior conjunction um, in Leo, and then we're going to have, I believe, the the Sun Mars superior conjunctions in Virgo, and so is the Sun Mercury superior conjunction. But boy, that's a lot of um, exactly the same thing. And in some ways, you know, it's interesting because um, superior uh, planets conjunctions with the Sun, especially the superior conjunction, have this quality of purifying. Of you know burning away the dross, burning away the old um, renewal, right? Which is it's interesting. We get like triple purification after a very messy set of configurations during the previous months, and and in some ways I think that's going to be really good, but it also indicates like there's going to need to be a big reset after making it through June and July, um, and in some ways you know and and that's good, but. Also remember that planets that are closely conjoined the sun are combust, and so mm. they don't necessarily work right. Um, especially if we're looking at horary charts from this uh, from this period of time. You know, if a planet is if a planet is burnt up in horary, um, the you know the house that it rules often has you know no power whatsoever. Um, and so a lot of the there are going to be some really interesting horaries from this period of time. 
you know, the only planet that is in fantastic shape is the sun. The sun's in its own sign. Um, you know, one way of looking at combustion is that the sun, the sun gets the other planet's power. It doesn't go away. Uh, the sun takes it over and it becomes the sun's own potency. Um, and this is the first time we've had the sun in Leo for, I think, three years where it wasn't sharing the sign with the North Node, which is an eclipse mm. point, which is absolutely malefic in relationship to the sun's priorities. To the sun. Right. Yeah. So the sun looks awesome <laughs> during this period of time. Well, and that's something that's really notable is that last eclipse that takes place in Leo has kind of there's an immediacy to it there in January, but it then has a six month range until that's fully over, which then comes to completion here during the summer during this next series of eclipses well, in June and July. Well, it's I, I would say that it's replaced by the um, the more recent lunar eclipse in Capricorn, right. which happens in July. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that then is the completion of that and bringing to completion some of the Leo Aquarius stuff that's been taking place over the past couple of years, which then ties it back into like the Great American Eclipse, for example, last last year, which was a solar eclipse in Leo, gets closed out by this lunar eclipse in Leo. Um, but part of the reason I wanted to mention that is because one of the things that I've been waiting to see how this period was going to go, and I wasn't paying attention to the astrology of this summer mundanely like i just started paying attention to this recently but i've always been curious because like one of the charts that's super activated this this summer is um the president's chart is trump's chart this summer um has a ton of stuff going on in zodiacal releasing and this is the period i had always been waiting for to understand some of the stuff that happened going way back to the 2016 election because I knew a year after the election he would go into a loosing of the bond, which usually indicates a major career transition, which is something that actually confused me in in the lead up to the 2016 election. But this this career transition was supposed to start a year after the election, starting December 28th, 2017, and it would last until March 17th, 2020. But then it would have a culmination point about two-thirds of the way through it. Which would take place then theoretically according to the technique between June 9th of 2019 and August 10th of 2019, with a focal point around July 23rd of 2019 through July 28th of 2019. And that's when there's a loosing of the bond on all three levels of the technique. So it's just repeating itself back and forth. And it's also weirdly happening between the signs of Capricorn and Cancer in his chart. Which also turns out to be the exact signs that are getting lit up by all these transits. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. It's a little like unnerving, and I'm nervous about it. But I wanted to mention those dates just because that's something I'd been looking forward to, trying to just understand what that was going to mean in terms of his overall chronology for a few years now. What that was coming up, but now that we're actually paying attention to this period and we're seeing all this stuff happening. During that exact same, you know, period, during it, using a completely different technique of just looking at transits, um, it's sort of bringing a lot of stuff into into focus. Totally, and I just wanted to add my little piece here around what you guys are saying with the sun. Um, your point, Austin, around the sun in this, you know, the sun in Leo period for 2019 does look especially golden, and I'm really excited about that Sun Jupiter trine. Just as like a bright spot, there's a radiance to that energy with the sun so vibrant in Leo, Jupiter so functional in Sag. Um, 
I don't know that that'll be helpful for Trump necessarily, but I think just for all of us to have, uh, you know, personally a configuration that's a little bit more supportive or forward-looking rather than some of the the doom and gloom. And, and you know, there'll be a level of, of this depressing melancholy tone in that June-July period. Um, so yeah. Just to, yeah. Well, well, I'm just hoping that whatever happens in June and July, that there's something that steps in and kind of like levels things out. And that's what we're seeing from Jupiter and Sagittarius, like casting that ray into Leo and then all the planets like walking into it um, as they're trying to sort of like flee from some of the stuff happening in Cancer is just some positive rectification or stabling or leveling out that happens after a sort of tumultuous two-month period in June and July especially, and a little bit mm-hmm. in August. It's gonna, Yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely going to feel way better. It's not really going to fix what's happening in Cancer and Capricorn, um, but it's, a, it's a, a blessed tonal shift. Yeah. It'll, it'll be- Yeah. Oh, I- go ahead. I was just going to say, I agree, because the Cancer and Capricorn stuff is not gone. It just settles down a bit into, you know, in that June-July period, the Cancer-Capricorn stuff is very front and center. And then it, I don't want to say it's in the background, but it just, it's not quite as boiling in our face as it is in that period. Sorry, Austin, what else were you going to say? Sorry, I'm chewing. Please go on. Okay, okay, sorry. Sorry, bad throw, bad throw. (laughs) So then uh, August. August mid the second half of August, there's a huge shift as as Austin already mentioned, where stuff starts moving into Virgo. We're getting out of Leo completely. Uh, Mars goes into Virgo by August 18th. Venus goes into Virgo August 20 by August 20th, 21st. The Sun goes into Virgo by the 22nd, 23rd, of course, and then eventually Mercury catches up, moves into Virgo almost simultaneously at the same time that the moon does around August 28th, August 29th. So then we get that big pileup of Virgo. Everything again starts running into Jupiter and squaring it while simultaneously trining Saturn in Capricorn. So there's some interesting dynamics as a result of that around that time. Um, it looks like you're in a stationed at some point. Yeah. When was in, that? Uh, let's, let's consult our guidebook here. The trusty ephemeris, uh, August 11th. Okay, so so that, that's actually tied in with all of that then that's happening yeah. as things are trying to wrap up is that Uranus stations retrograde at six degrees of Taurus. Uh, it looks like August 10th, August 11th. Yeah, and Jupiter will actually station direct right around the same time in the same 24-hour period. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's actually in August, all that stuff we were talking about of Jupiter, like lending a hand and balancing things out, Jupiter actually gets amped up himself. And really, after a several month period of being retrograde and, and not being in great shape as a result of that, suddenly, you know, comes back fully powered around that time in August at the same time. That's even more interesting then. Mm hmm. Yes. We've got some real reversals and real sort of game changers going on in August, even more than I I thought. Yeah. One of the things I was going to say is um, as a follow up to the planets in Leo not fixing what's happening in Cancer and Capricorn, Mm -hmm. it's more a shift to paying attention to all of the good that Jupiter in Sagittarius has been doing this year. Um, The direct station of Jupiter in that last third of its yearly synodic cycle is generally where you see uh where you see the reaping of gains 
um, and the rewards for opportunities that were um, seized and followed through upon earlier in the year. Right. And, and Jupiter is also, sometimes when it's retrograde, it's almost like more indirect in its method of approaching or attempting to rectify things or more subtle. But then by the time it stations direct, it seems like it's having a more direct um, and not indirect influence in trying to balance things out. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's more powerful for good. All yeah. Right. All right. So that's sort of August. Everything goes into Virgo in the second part of August. That brings us into September, where everything's in Virgo. <laughs> everything's in Virgo for the month. Yeah, pretty well. Pretty much until we get to the Sun in Libra. Um, you know, or the the first half, everything's in Virgo. And it's you know it's right. the same setup. We got Jupiter in Sag and Saturn in Capricorn. And what's interesting about all, everything in Virgo is that because uh, because Jupiter is at fifteen degrees of Sag and uh, Saturn is at fourteen fifteen of Capricorn, um, planets are going to simu basically simultaneously aspect and interact with Saturn and Jupiter. And so the in terms of equilibrating the good with the bad. Um, that's exactly what that says. It's looking, you know, looking at Jupiter and Saturn at exactly the same time. And so Venus, Mercury, the sun and Mars are all going to do that in the first half of September. Right. It's just weird that they all hit Neptune at the same time. Like I always keep running into this each year in September when everything starts going through Virgo over the past few years is just it gets that that opposition from Neptune and Pisces really strongly during that time. That's a good point. So it's kind of it's interesting. It's it's yeah. looking and a little earlier than that they trine Uranus. So that's interesting. The planets in Virgo have um, have a clear view of every outer planet during uh, they aspect every outer planet, which I don't know. That's kind of I, I kind of like that um, thinking in terms of Virgo, like Virgo, and you know the. The uh, with the equinox approaching in the the northern or in both hemispheres, that sort of like you know Virgo sits down to analyze. Okay, so what's happened? This was good. That was awful. That's just kind of weird. You know, how am I doing with these changes? There's a there's a a reviewing, analyzing, sorting um, mechanism to Virgo and the configuration with everything uh, during this uh, this first two weeks of September does a really nice sort of job of facilitating that. Definitely. All right. Um, September, everything's in Virgo. Lunations, of course, in Virgo and new moon in Virgo, full moon in Pisces. Uh, Jupiter is moving fast again. It's picked up speed after stationing many weeks earlier. Eventually, everything starts ingressing into Libra uh, by the middle of the month. So it looks like Mercury and Venus go first around September 13th, 14th. They both move into Libra. Uh, the sun eventually catches up, of course, around the 22nd, 23rd. Yeah, I and so generally speaking, I really like um this cup of this this couple of this like last week of September. You've got one, you know, with Venus in Libra. And with Jupiter and Sagittarius, you have both benefics in signs they rule. Yeah. And Mercury's in a position to get love from both of them. And with the sun's ingress in and the sun's ingress into Libra, 
Um, it also puts the sun in the sign of a dignified benefic Venus, but it it separates the sun from Mars, right? So w- by by that mm, sign boundary. Right. So I think there are going to be some. I think I know where the uh, auspicious elections for September are going to live. Yeah, look at that nice Venus uh, Jupiter sextile yes. there from sixteen seventeen Libra. Uh, Venus to Jupiter at like 17 Sag around September 27th, 28th. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a nice looking set of days. You were eyeballing it really actually. Is. Totally. Yeah, I had it because it's the only time. Um, well, I mean, Venus is in dignity in Pisces and square Jupiter, but it's it's probably the best. It's one of the best or nicest kind of benefic type aspects for the whole of 2019. So yeah, I um totally on board with this with you guys. Venus is still square by sign to the Capricorn stuff, but she is separating from Saturn and she gets to interact with Jupiter before she has to deal with Pluto. Right. So that's probably going to be one of our most auspicious elections of the year once we get to the end of September. Um all right, so we keep going. Eventually that takes us into October. And the only other thing I just throw in just for people tracking is the last Jupiter Neptune square happens in September as well. Oh, okay, that's super important. So when was that? Uh looks like the eight. Yeah, you had it 19th. almost there. <laughs> yeah. There, there it is. Um do yeah. you have it? That's funny. Um, I'm asking you if <laughs> if only there was some way to calculate when <laughs> that planetary no, line would take. Uh, uh so about September twentieth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the twentieth—that's the last one. When was the second one? Because that means we glossed. Second one was in June, actually. Um, We had many other things to discuss in June. Yeah, and that's going to get uh, that second one gets pretty lost in the cacophony of June. Yeah, and and it does. But I, I wonder because that starts out the first part of that sequence starts out in January, and that's when our first eclipses take place. And then those eclipses, that especially that solar eclipse in Capricorn, sets it up for the eclipses that then take place in June and July, the fact that the second Jupiter-Neptune square is also occurring during that time, I mean, might mean that it's actually tied in with this whole sequence in some weird way. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's that important. I don't think it's going to move the needle um, nearly as much as a lot of other things we've been talking about. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, we will see. So those dates are going to be like, when was what month was the second one, Kelly, June? June, yeah. So the Jupiter square Neptune, January, June, and September of 2019. Okay. Um, it's yeah. I mean, I do agree with where you're coming from, Austin. It's a little bit of a landscape kind of backdrop setting. I think some charts and some people will be more tuned into it based on what you know natal placements and configurations. Um, the drama in June and July is definitely going to overtake um, other experiences. Then I think. For many people, there might be a little piece if you're really tuned into the Jupiter Neptune square. You may get a little something in June, but you may not realize it until afterwards because there are other more pressing situations that demand your attention. Yeah. Yeah. I would just remember that if that is activated in your chart or if it's hitting a personal planet in some way, that the three, when a planet, when outer planets especially make three aspects due to retrogrades, it sometimes sets up like a beginning, a middle, and an end of the story. And so the mm-hmm. first exact aspect is like the beginning of the story or the beginning of the sequence of events. The second one is the the middle part of the story and then the third one which happens here in the later part of September is the the conclusion and the sort of outcome of everything. 
Yeah, I do think, I mean, I think there'll be a little bit more space to tune into this aspect in September. Um, And so it might be a chance to reflect on some dreams or hopes or aspirations. You know, when we talked about January 2019 and that idea of the archer's bow being shot above the target to allow for gravity, you know, September might be a little bit of a reflection and, you know, how far, how close did I get kind of thing. Well, Definitely, that's it, perfect. Well, and it's uh, agreed. Also, it, it, you you would get all of this just with watching Jupiter's synodic cycle, like the the first one, the you know the first part of the cycle after um, the sun conjoins it and it rises in the east is about the the beginning and in figuring out what opportunities to go after, and then the retrograde phase, which is when it uh, conjoins Neptune again, is about, you know, um, things being more difficult or complicated and trying to get through it. And then the the third of the cycle after the direct station is about outcomes anyway. So you're going to get all of this just with Jupiter's synodic cycle. It's modified by Neptune, but that like that one, two, three thing is already there with just uh, Jupiter. Definitely. All right. Um, so that brings us to the end of September. We then move into October, where Mars catches up to the Libra planets, and Mars moves into Libra. It looks like by October fourth. Uh, what else do we have going on? Well, it's um, Mercury and Venus into Scorpio, and Mars into Libra is definitely what I was looking at as defining this period of time. Sure. So, so Mercury goes into Scorpio October third. Venus catches up and moves into Scorpio by October 8th. And this is significantly less yeah. uplifting than um the <laughs> than the the that that fun um like early October or early October late September period. Period. It's not, yeah. you know, it it doesn't compare with it doesn't really or um it's sort of like a half strength version of the summer's configuration. Um, you know, one the things that I don't like about this um, is that we have Mars and Saturn square each other, and that Mars is not in a very good position, being in its detriment in Libra. Um, and Mars has the job of ruling yeah. Scorpio, so both Venus and Mercury are looking to their ruler, Mars, who's not the uh, who's not who's not in good condition and is fighting with Saturn. And so I, I don't love that. I would also add that. Um, in, uh, in Vedic astrology, Mars gets us, yeah, there's special preference for Mars's fourth house aspect. Um, and Saturn, uh, Saturn's, uh, Sat- excuse me, Saturn's 10th house aspect is also super strong. And when they're in this kind of square where Mars is, um, in a sense, waning back to Saturn, they're both throwing a full aspect at each other, which is sort of maximum, you know, uh, maximum disagreement. Um, that forms uh, Yama Yoga, um, you know, Death God Yoga, and so that's um, you know that's not that's not fun. No, it's not. I mean, it's not as bad as June and July, but it's not. It's not good. Death yeah, God. it's uh, Death God sorry. Yoga. That's the that's the <laughs> technical term. Yeah, uh, it's it's Yama Yoga uh, when you have Mars and Saturn like fully entangled uh, under a variety of criteria. You get Yama Yoga. Which makes sense. It's Mars. What do you what do you get when you get Mars and Saturn together? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had flagged this period for different technical reasons um, than what you've identified, Austin. But I had flagged, you know, the idea of Mars being in detriment and having to sorry, in fall and having to deal with Saturn in Capricorn. Um, 
that feels very it feels like tension, discord, disagreement. Um, it, it and it feels angry if you like, or fr- the feeling of frustration, basically. Yeah, yeah. Frustration is a good keyword for Mars square Saturn, like wanting to do something but being blocked in some way and having to work around that or work within the context of the constraints that you're forced to accept. Yeah, and from Mars's perspective, right? Mars is in Venus ruled Libra. Mars wants yeah. to Mars wants to like hang out um at a cocktail party or um or you know Mars is Mars doesn't want to work super hard in Libra. And so but this is a period but a Mars Saturn square calls for nose to the grindstone. And so with Saturn so much stronger and you know Saturn um is exalted in Libra, so it has, you know, power over there. Um and so it's like, oh boy, like Poor Mars. Poor Mars is getting work to the bone here. And Venus being in a Mars ruled sign is in a place to feel it. And Mercury being in a Mars ruled sign is in a place to think it. Yeah. And I think too, you know, Mars in Libra is going against his nature, contrary to his nature. He is trying to figure out how to keep the peace and keep other people happy while still juggling the pressures or the demands or the obligations of whatever Saturn is asking for him. And I think this could highlight a really maybe tense period in some of our personal relationships as we're trying to figure out how to keep the people that matter, you know, keep our connections with them on some kind of even keel when there are external circumstances or pressures that might interfere or disrupt that. So Yeah, um, uh, 100%. Um, I wanted to, sorry, I just wanted to jump in. Yeah. Chris, it looks like you're already paused to talk about this. We have a new moon in Scorpio. Um, during right in the middle of this, that is opposed to Uranus by like I don't know ten minutes or something. It's an almost perfect opposition to Uranus. So we have you know that disruptive, um, destabilizing, volatizing Uranus. Um, uh, Uranus. Uh, uh, Uranus adds that to a period that's already not super favorable. Right. This is October 27th when it's a new moon in Scorpio at four Scorpio opposite Uranus at four degrees of Taurus. And yeah. Mars is like super closely square Saturn from 15 Libra to 15 Capricorn. Yeah, it's a rough lunation, right? Really rough. Yeah, because the lunation itself is opposite Uranus. Look, um, you know, in terms of the disruption and then the ruler Mars is just dealing with Saturn and Pluto. Yay. So that is the end of October. That takes us into November, uh, where inner planets start moving into Sag, starting with Venus, November 1st-ish. Yay. Yes. Mercury wants to, but- Happy dance. It's like Mercury almost moves into Sag, but instead it stations retrograde at 27 Scorpio at the very end of October, around the 30th, 31st, and goes retrograde in Scorpio for a few weeks. Uh, what else do we have going on? I think Mars is going to get into Scorpio this month as well, so that'll be helpful. Looks like that happens and November 18th, 18th, November 19th. It is obviously coming into one of its rulership signs, but it will have to encounter the opposition to Uranus. So that'll be something just to make note of. Yeah, well, and it's, look, it it's, looks like uh, the day that, or right around the same day that Mars moves into Scorpio is when Mercury stations direct at eleven degrees of Scorpio. Right, and that awesome. oh, um, yeah. that maybe there was a delay. Yeah, that and that Mercury retrograde is, I don't know, pretty. 
like unpleasant. Uh, it's not great looking, but it's also not the most malefic thing in the world. It's um, you know, it, it doesn't compare to the to the one in June and July. Um, I for one will be happy to see Mars back in Scorpio. Yeah. And who doesn't love a Venus Jupiter conjunction in Sag? Yeah. I, yeah. That is the highlight. I do want to say it is the highlight, the very end of November. Um, it is actually the second Venus Jupiter conjunction because Venus doesn't have a retrograde in 2018 and she's going to cover a little bit more zodiac territory. There was or there will be a Venus Jupiter conjunction in January of, um, as yeah, well. Yeah, of 2018. That's, that's a nice. Like parting Ju- gift, twenty nineteen. Yeah, Venus gives a parting like high five to Jupiter in Sagittarius before Jupiter gets out of Sagittarius this year. Yeah, it's like a little kiss, it, and then I'm, she's you, on you, to the next. I, thing. I really can't imagine a more celebratory configuration than Venus Jupiter conjoined in Sag. Yeah, right. It's like we start the year with that. We go through some t- t- tumultuous stuff in the summer, and then we end the year with that. Totally. I would say that that's a that's a a consolation prize. Um, That's not what we're ending the year with. (laughs) No, there's other things in December, but the end of November looks great for you know a wonderful celebration. Um, That's probably going to be around American Thanksgiving, I think. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, I think we will just wrap it up then, and we will end the year with November. (laughs) End of November. (laughs) We will save December for next year's forecast episode. Yeah. I mean, obviously we won't, but it, what happens in December with the ingress of Jupiter into Capricorn is we are then set up for the astrology of 2020. Yep. Let's look at it. Yeah. All right. So don't, there it don't is. look so, away. Yeah. Look at it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so there it is. It's Face like it. December 1st or December 2nd, Jupiter ingresses into Capricorn and that really starts off this whole sort of configuration of December. Venus had already gone in several days earlier uh it looks like around december around november 24th 25th venus had moved into capricorn but it's really jupiter moving into that sign that is one of the major shifts that occurs in december at the very end of the year and it it brings a whole different tone to what we've been dealing with since january since now we have four planets plus the south node all in capricorn yeah, and so yeah, you know the one thing the the saving grace of twenty nineteen is that there's always that you know there's there has up to this point always been that Jupiter and Sag that dignified benefic, and now we're looking at right that very like optimistic Jupiter in its own sign squaring Neptune bringing even more optimism even more hope sometimes illusory but at least uh, sparkly Jupiter and Sagittarius but then we. We lose even that, and then uh, there's there's just this shift that happens at the very end of the year. Yeah, and Jupiter is fallen in Capricorn. It's yeah, one of the most difficult signs uh, for Jupiter to do its thing. So it really is like a, you know, the balloon has popped. We are dealing with, well, I don't, I even I can't spin this one. Um, it's Jupiter in the same sign as the South Node. <laughs> That's funny because actually, that somebody said that they were like Kelly will sh- at least Kelly will balance out Austin and Chris in this month's this year's forecast episode to give us the positive spin on some of these difficult configurations. So we, we yeah, need, and we, we need you well, here, the, Kelly. What I, I was know, I mean, the best I could be... do was talk about how good the Jupiter parts are going to be, right. and you'd really want to take advantage of those. Sorry, Austin. Oh, that's uh, yeah. What I said was this would be Kelly's greatest challenge. 
Yeah. This, right. this would yeah, be the, was... the unfairly hard ba- boss battle. It, yeah, and I mean, I remember what things felt like collectively in 2008, which was the last time we had Jupiter and Capricorn. Now, what we didn't have then that we are dealing with now is the South Node Saturn co-presence as well. Last time it was just Jupiter and Pluto in Capricorn, 2008, the banking industry in America fell apart and caused ripples around the world. We've got two more big problems. So this is my greatest challenge and I'm not sure that I can, uh, I don't know that we can make this a positive. I mean, I just keep telling people to reduce your financial exposure. I think, you know, the less debt you have, the more insulated you will be from something like this. And that's what I can say about that. Yeah. (laughs) And part of it at this point is by the time we get to December, Saturn and Pluto are back to where they started at the beginning of the year, which is within three degrees of an exact conjunction in the third deacon of Capricorn. But now they're on a collision course and there's no averting it where they're they're coming up on that conjunction really soon. Saturn is moving very fast and it's moving right towards and getting ready to complete that conjunction with Pluto uh, in January. Yep. And well, so one thing that's not necessarily positive, but ultimately is, is this, you know, this year and next year, night 2019, 2020, this is a, a these are, this is a, a, a rough transition period. And, um, you know, th- there are years after this, you know, we will look just like we, we look yes. back at like, oh, 2008, nine, oh, dude, I got fired. I was out of work for nine months. You know, you'd be like, that was rough, but you know, life continued after that. Um, and so, you know, remember, you know, one of the ways to work with Saturn and Capricorn, one of the things that's helpful about Saturn and Capricorn is it can be a very good reminder to look at things in terms of cycles and to look at things historically and not to get sucked in to one point in the timeline to the point where your vision of that obliterates everything else. That's a really good point, Austin. And, uh, you know, when I think back to 2008, The other point I like to make is there is a big difference between what happens collectively and what happens personally. Um, That, yeah, there was a lot going on in 2008, but I know for me, there were some amazing things that came into my life. There was huge transformation in that year, but there was also a lot of happiness and a lot of excitement. So, uh, you know, that's part of this this process. Um, The other thing that we haven't touched on yet that I'm just going to throw in here since it's like super Capricorn- I mean, as you're clocking through the days, Chris, it's yeah. just go, like insane to, once the sun. Go back to Chris. Just showing go. that buildup at like 22 Capricorn where like this Mercury The sun Saturn. comes in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a four planet Dude, conjunction all at like 22 Capricorn in, but, early, but, in early to mid-January. But before that, we get a solar eclipse on Christmas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so the one cultural movement that I'm watching that I think really speaks to the South Node in Capricorn and then is amplified by all the other transits with uh, planets moving through Capricorn is the minimalist movement and the idea of kind of voluntarily reducing one's staff or one's possessions, that idea of purifying where we have the basics, we have what we need, we have the essentials, but we don't have anything superflu- superfluous or excessive and I think that's, um, I don't know, maybe that's the Kelly spin on this, which is, you know, this is a great time for decluttering and purging, whether it's physical possessions, like you have too many pairs of jeans or you have too many books, 
or whether it's that you have too many commitments and, and there is congestion in your schedule with your time. This is very much about coming back to basics, coming back to core, doing what really matters and not getting distracted by anything else. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Definitely. And, and making the most out of what you do have instead of focusing on what you don't have and maximizing that to, to its fullest potential. I mean, because I, I have Jupiter and Capricorn, and I think that's a fine placement. Uh, <laughs> yes, you are and, known for your buoyant Jupiterian nature. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so that is what yeah. what Jupiter and Capricorn is like. If if anybody needs an example, but but definitely taking advantage of of what you have available to you and, and learning how to get the most mileage out of out of that. Uh, that's great advice, Kelly. Totally. And let the it the I I I couldn't agree more that Saturn South Node stuff says less is more very emphatically. Yeah. You know, you don't need to get stronger so you can carry more. You need to carry less and you'll feel stronger. Correct. Yeah, you don't need more organizing things from the storage shop. You actually need less things, f full stop. You know, and the idea of, of tiny houses and, and you know, we've, we've touched a little bit on the Depression era, the 1930s, because of Uranus transits back then. Pluto was in Cancer in that time and... I do often think about the Cancer Capricorn axis as an axis that an axis that naturally describes frugality or taking a little bit and stretching it a long way or, or doing a lot with a little. And obviously in that period in the 1930s people didn't have a choice. They had to, you know, do a, a they only had a little and they had to make it last. I'm interested to see in this period whether it's more about making that choice. I could have more, but I don't need it. And I'm sort of internally self-regulating around excess, if you like. Right. And even thinking about like 2008, for example, while there was a lot of people that, that lost a lot and then had to deal with less at that time, there were also some people who, when the markets were really down, were able to make some good investments that then Grew and developed over the course of the past decade, and you know, like those investors that wait for the period where you know things aren't going well and where you can buy, let's say, stocks or other things. And if you make a wise, sort of targeted investment of something, um, watching that grow when things eventually do start to develop or, or or go on the upturn again, and paying attention to even when things are at their lowest, like still anticipating. Where they're going to be at some point in the future when when everything starts growing and, and blossoming again? Absolutely, I've been uh, I've been saving money for a couple years to hopefully make a down payment on a house when the shit hits the fan and the prices drop. Yeah, and this is um, this is something that personally for me in two thousand and eight, I was in a position where I had a little bit of savings and. Uh, I was able to invest um, in some stocks at that time because it was a good buying opportunity because the the stock market had come off. And I think I know Austin, you I know of a handful of other astrologers actually that are on the sidelines with the property market right now in various countries in the world where they're just waiting to see what happens in 2019. And uh you know, obviously the theory is you want to buy low and sell high, but if we know we're going into a little bit of a low point, then, um, you know, waiting for that. And if, and that's the idea of your, if you're insulated and protected, if you're not overextended, then this can be, um, a great investment in your long-term security. Basically. Yeah. Well, and you know, Chris, you make a, a very Jupiter and Capricorn point with, um, by saying that 
um, you know, disaster or trouble, malefic things can be an opportunity. Jupiter, right? It's Jupiter in a malefic sign. We talked about this with Jupiter in, in Scorpio, right? How there was an opportunity, like Jupiter and Scorpio brought us an opportunity to bring justice to unjust things, right? And right. so similarly, Jupiter in Saturn's sign um, can make, um, you know, can make, uh, is finding the the opportunity that misfortune provides. Yeah, making the best out of a bad situation or learning how to thrive and grow even in a difficult environment. Yep. Yeah. So I even got you guys to spin something positive out of this. Well, you, I got to try. We, we got to try. <laughs> you know, without a little effort, this is, you know, horrifically depressing. But Chris, I'm so glad you shared your own Jupiter placement there because I think that, uh, you know, that can be helpful for people. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's just a funny conversation, even just seeing astrologers and newer astrologers like discussing things on Twitter, the tendency for people to want to make statements and generalizations about placements, but then people sometimes get very, you know, it can go in a weird direction when it's all just like one-sided or like negative interpretations of the tendencies of certain placements. And sometimes you've got to you've got to explain the other side of the story, which is that every placement, no matter how difficult, can still have positive manifestations or positive like side effects. Where um, even if it's not a naturally like easy placement, it can still um, be used in a constructive way in some instances. Yeah, and this is a really great distinction between the theory of like what is a good or a bad placement for a planet versus the application of that and what it looks like in real life. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for clients that I work with that have Jupiter and Capricorn, they do have this natural conservative approach to money and they don't tend to rack up crazy amounts of debt. They do tend they if they if we say they've got a lot of fear about it, fair enough. But if that motivates them into good money habits earlier in life, then they also have um, some some you know you know you may not get free money if you've got Jupiter and Capricorn, but you really take care of the money that you earn or that you do get. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so just to wrap up those placements for December and to make sure we properly emphasize that solar eclipse you mentioned on Christmas on December twenty fifth, yes. uh, four degrees of Capricorn conjunct Jupiter at five degrees of Capricorn. That's the unique thing about this calendar year is we don't just get one eclipse, one solar eclipse in Capricorn, which might be normal, but we get two of them, one in January and then another in December. <laughs> yeah. It's such a it's I, I again I feel like this this uh this year has some unfairly rude moments. It's like really so solar <laughs> solar eclipse on on Christmas. Like thanks. Thanks time. Thanks time. Yeah. And I always find it is interesting when we get major lunations like eclipses or even a full moon really close to the solstice, you know, within a few days of the solstice, it just adds to the extreme quality of what's going on there. Um, right. Yeah, that's – do you want to go back, Chris, to the – oh, right. Yeah, yeah that, so there's that's the, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff <laughs> in Capricorn and then it's like Mercury moves in there, Venus departs and moves into Aquarius, but then – Mercury goes into Capricorn by the end of December, by the 28th, 29th. Saturn is getting so close. Like it doesn't complete, it doesn't perfect the conjunction, but it's at 21 Capricorn, getting ready to conjoin Pluto at 22 Capricorn by the end of December. And then eventually we 
as we said earlier, we, we get that exact conjunction of Saturn and Pluto uh, by it looks like January 11th, January 12th at 22 degrees of Capricorn. And weirdly, the Sun and Mercury basically hit those degrees right around the same time frame. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the buildup to everything. Do we get three? Have you guys looked ahead? Do we get three um, conjunctions of Saturn and Pluto, or is it just that one? I we get I think, one. Yeah, just I think, one. I think it's okay, one. so it's all building up to that that moment. January twenty. Well, but there, it's it. building up to a couple of moments. Um, you know, you fast forward a little bit, you get Mars, Saturn, Pluto, Jupiter. There's there there like that that la that late cap button gets hit hard several times by uh, multiple configurations. Okay. You you're spot on, Austin. There is that uh but the the, the Saturn Pluto itself is one, but from late Feb and into March we get Mars there. Um Yeah. All right. Well, that is and taking then, us yeah. a little far afield into 2020. So we'll we're come to, back to that for next year. We'll bookmark that for one year from now, where when we will return again for the forecast for the following year. Look, All right. Looking forward um, to it. Any final? Yeah. <laughs> no. I... Yeah, it should be interesting to check in and and catch up on how things went in 2019. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're wrong, and that this is a great year for the world, and. Um, <laughs> You know, um, it, not only is the economy doing well, but economic inequality is shrinking. All the all all <laughs> the nations are getting along with each other. And um, oh my gosh, Austin, you know, I love this. So those yeah. are not my predictions, but hopefully I'm wrong. No. Yeah, I mean, as long as I can eat a lab-grown burger oh! uh, with Uranus, Uranus and Taurus by the end of the year, then I will consider that a successful astrological. I don't know prediction. Yes. Yeah. It's the um, utopia is at it's hand, my friend. Yeah. It's it's good that it's good that they're getting the the soylent green ready for distribution right before things fall into the shitter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> on on that note, on that note, uh, I think we we did it, guys. So that is the forecast for 2019. So of course we're going to return. And check in periodically at the end of each month, since we're going to continue to do our monthly forecast episodes, where we'll do more of a deep dive into the astrology of each month, uh, every month on the Astrology Podcast, which you can find out more information about at theastrologypodcast.com. Um, you guys are each going to be doing your own projects over the course of the next year. Kelly, you also do like a, a monthly subscription forecast, right? Yeah, I always forget to mention it because it's not technically a Patreon, but it is a monthly subscription with week ahead and month ahead video insights. So you can sign up via the homepage for that as well. Okay, brilliant. And that's at kellysastrology.com? Yes, I should give the website. That won't be changing. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. And then Austin, you are on the, you are about to, in a few days, launch a podcast on your website, austincopic.com, right? Yeah, it's been much delayed, but um, I've nailed myself to the January 2nd election. So that'll be coming out. And that's me me talking to my friends about weird stuff. Have to have you guys on at some point. Of course. Definitely. I don't. We do not get enough of each other with these once a month forecast episodes. That'll be fun to check in on yours. And then Kelly, you've also been doing the Water Trio podcast lately. We have, yeah, and we are all going well. We'll keep that up. That's a weekly 30-minute show that we drop uh, every Monday, so that'll uh, be continuing 
uh, throughout 2019 with all the exciting developments that 2019 will bring and they'll be announced here and there in due course. So Brilliant. And Austin, you're going to keep doing your monthly um, Patreon-funded forecasts, written forecasts, right? Yeah, I do monthlies. I do dailies. I do you know articles like I'm doing my yearly will be out in a few days. I did a Jupiter and Sa- Jupiter and Sag, things like that. I, and I do that slider kind of moves as to how much writing I'm doing on that. It's usually a minimum of two pieces a month. But uh, when I was doing the Deccanly column, then it was more like four or five. We'll see. I think I'm going to spend more time. I'm going to reserve some time to write some books in 2019, um, starting with getting the second edition of 36 Faces out by the end of the first quarter. Brilliant. Yeah, a lot of people are looking forward to that. It's been out of print for a while now, so I'll be looking forward to seeing that in, in circulation again. It's only been it's uh, been less than a year, but um, you know, people are mad, so Yeah. Yeah, I've I've had some comments lately where people have been talking about that and I'm like, yeah, I think it's coming back in print, so it would be great to get that back available again. Definitely. Yeah, yeah it's and, definitely coming. Uh, I and shipping just launched a week or two ago my posters, which I'm still really happy with how they came out because it shows the astrology of the entire year. So for those that want to use some of the artwork that we use in our monthly forecast episodes, but have it for the entire year so you can see all the, the ingresses, the retrograde stations, and the exact outer planet aspects that we talked about in this episode, uh, you can get this awesome poster package, which is available at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2019 posters. And I'm shipping those out now, and I think I'll make it available on Amazon.com sometime in the next few weeks. But for now, I'm just shipping them directly worldwide. Uh, All right, guys, I think that's it. So um, thanks for joining me today for the forecast episode. Thanks, everybody in the audience. We had a live um, audience of patrons that came in and made some comments, some of which we tried to incorporate, some of which we didn't get a chance to. But I appreciate everybody who supports the podcast through our page on Patreon and who joined us for that. Uh, yeah, and I look forward to catching up with you guys at the end of 2019 and checking in, and maybe we'll do like a recap episode to take in everything that's happened by the time we get to the end of the year. Yeah, well, and I look Perfect. forward to meeting meeting with you guys monthly and doing a blow by blow. Yeah, to like really drill down on some of this. We did that. We started out doing that a little bit more at the beginning of the for like January. Yeah, but uh, going into especially once we get to this summer, and because we'll we'll see much more like the trajectory of things once we get closer to it, and that'll be really fun and really fascinating to dissect it and go into each of the lunations and some of the the shorter term transits that we didn't get a chance to touch on here. Completely, yeah, we'll be able to go into a little bit more detail, and it'll be great to keep on track uh, with how things are unfolding, and it's always fun doing the monthly forecast with you guys. Definitely. All right, guys. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, Always appreciate your support. So uh, good luck in 2019. We will see you again next month for the forecast for February. But until then, uh, yeah, good luck. And (laughs) we will see you again in the next episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again next time. Take care of yourselves and each other. Bye. 